Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast. 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 A review show. A review show dedicated to the Secret Origins dedicated comic. Dedicated to the Secret Origins comics. To the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. Published by DC in the 1980s. Secret Origins. Secret Origins. Secret Origins was an anthology series. Published by DC Comics. Published by DC Comics. With each issue telling the origin telling of... Telling the origin. Of at least one hero or villain. At least one hero or villain. Of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues. The series ran for 50 issues. The series ran for 50 issues. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990. And also included three annuals. And also included three annuals and, and one, one special. special. All told. All told between the 54 comics. Between the 54 comics. The 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner. The Secret Origins banner. Something like 120 the stories 120 were chronicled stories in this series. Something like 120 stories 120 were chronicled in this series. 120 stories were chronicled in the series. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. Why do you want me to read the intro? I've said it enough for one lifetime. (laughs) Nice. I'm Ryan Daly, and this is the Coda to Secret Origins podcast. All 50 regular issues of the Secret Origins comic published by DC in the 1980s have been covered on previous episodes, as have the three annuals and the one special issue. Secret Origins is over, and this episode is merely meant to tie up a couple of loose ends, including your listener feedback from episode 50 and my final thoughts on the series and the podcast. But before I get to that, I simply cannot do an episode of this show and not talk about an origin story. There's one more tale that was not published in Secret Origins, but is sort of tangentially related to the series, and it also ties into one of my future projects on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. In January of 1990, before Secret Origins was cancelled, DC published a trade paperback called Secret Origins of the World's Greatest Superheroes. The collection reprinted the Green Lantern story from Secret Origins 36, the Martian Manhunter story from issue 35, the Barry Allen Flash story from the second Secret Origins annual, and the post-crisis Justice League of America story from issue 32. It also reprinted the sixth issue of John Byrne's Man of Steel, because I guess if you need to distill Superman's post-crisis origin into one issue, that's as good as any. There was one other story included in this collection, a story not originally published in Secret Origins. In fact, it wasn't a reprint. 
It was a brand new story for the trade paperback, and it became the post-crisis origin of the Batman as a streamlined take on the events of Batman Year One and the Shaman story arc from Legends of the Dark Knight. The Man Who Falls is written by Denny O'Neill with art by Dick Giordano, and as it is the last story I will review on the Secret Origins podcast, I wanted to bring back the very first guest to ever appear on the show with me. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the host of Supermates, Mr. Chris Franklin. How are you, Chris? Oh, I'm great, Ryan. Thanks for having me back one last time. Thank you very much for coming back one last time. It wasn't enough that you got to cover the origins of both Superman and Batman. You get to cover Batman twice. (laughs) (laughs) Plus the JLA, plus Teen Titans and Poison Ivy and Clayfaces and stuff like that. You're just, you're all over the place. I know, I'm a podcasting whore. What can I say? (laughs) Well, I, I mean, I felt like I had to give you this one anyway because... Covering the story was in part your idea. I mean, I I knew that the story was out there and I was thinking of maybe covering it, but I wasn't really sure until you brought it up. And then, I I mean, I think I realized pretty early on in the process of this whole series that this should be the epilogue, that we should revisit this one. After we had done Superman, after we had done the Golden Age Batman, we should come back and do this one again. And it just felt right to have this on the final episode. So that's why we're here. Well, I mean, this one kind of, you know, it it definitely cements the post-crisis version of Batman, you know. So I think think it's kind of a neat way to end it, too, because, you know, obviously Secret Origins rode that line between pre-crisis and post-crisis. And uh, now we're definitely in the (laughs) (laughs) post-crisis. We definitely are. We definitely see some differences in the depiction of the Dark Knight. And like I said, we've, we have shared and covered our personal reading and our viewing histories with Batman back on Episode 6. We do not need to repeat that, so let's just get into the story if you're ready. I am ready. Okay, The Man Who Falls, as uh, Ryan said, Dennis O'Neill did the script, Dick Giordano on the art, Mark Wade was the editor, John Costanza the letterer, Tom McGraw the colorist, Batman created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. The Batman sits perched on a stone gargoyle high above the Gotham streets on a cold November night. He thinks ahead to how the next few moments he will drop from his perch and crash into a drug den below, disrupting yet another criminal's plans. He wonders, how many times has he done this? How many nights spent on this vigil? How many times has he contemplated the outcome if he slipped and fell? And then his mind goes back, back to when, as a young boy, he did fall. Young Bruce Wayne fell through the old boards on the grounds of his father's estate and crashed into the stone floor of the cave below. The stillness of the cave was soon disrupted by the hissing and chittering sounds of a swarm of bats that soon overtook the boy. Young Bruce screamed in despair until he felt a familiar arm grab him. He kept his eyes shut until he was once more above ground, his father's harsh words of disappointment pounding into him. His mother was far more comforting. Bruce asked if he was in hell, but she assured him that it was just an old cave. Despite this, Bruce no longer felt safe. In the present, the Batman thinks how once you fall, you never stop falling, and worse yet, you must watch others fall. His mind flashes back to the night his parents were gunned down before him, their bodies falling as the life left them. The night his parents fell, they never got up. And neither did eight-year-old Bruce Wayne. What arose was something different. This Bruce Wayne needed a purpose, so he sought it, and cleverly steered himself away from the protection of the guardians appointed to him. He left Gotham when he was 14, visiting campuses and other seedier places of learning, but he never stayed long. 
Any friends he might have made were put off by his acts of snobbery and seeming lack of commitment. He watched as others found the kind of happiness he chose to deny himself. At age 20, he entered FBI training in Washington, D.C., but soon discovered all he would learn were regulations and how to be a snappy dresser, so he dropped out. With this, Bruce knew he couldn't operate within the legal system. His travels took him to a secluded temple in the Paketo Sand Mountains of Korea. Using a secret sequence he had picked up from an informant, he unlocked the large doorknobs and entered the temple. In meditation, he waited for three weeks before Master Kurgi appeared to him, and when he did, the sensei ordered him to sweep the floor. He swept the floor for a month. The next month, he added washing dishes and finally boiling rice. In his fifth month, the master finally began to teach him what he wished to learn. In their 11th month together, Kurgi warned that, despite Bruce's extraordinary abilities, he had been marked by a great violence that could possibly destroy him. The master offered to teach Bruce how to unlearn all he had learned and get past his pain, but Bruce refused. He left Master Kurgi and found another teacher in France, a manhunter named Descard. When Bruce discovered Descard's methods were as brutal as those he sought, the two parted company. By this point, Bruce had either spoken to or studied under the world's greatest detectives, except for one. He joined Detective Willie Doggett on the trail of a man named Tom Woodley deep in the Alaskan wilderness. Woodley murdered Doggett and lost his life in the subsequent struggle with Bruce. Left alone in the unforgiving wilderness, Bruce Wayne fell once more. He awoke to find an Indian shaman in a totem mask like a bat. The shaman told Bruce he had the mark of the beast sacred to his tribe. Shortly thereafter, Bruce Wayne finally returned to Gotham. He felt like the universe was presenting him with a mystery to solve, one involving his mission and bats. His first attempt at crime fighting in a crude disguise was a complete failure. Dejected, he returned to the manor and his father's old study. In a dusty volume, he read, Criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. He then heard a familiar sound, hissing and chittering. Then the sound of shattering glass as a large bat crashed through his window. The final piece of the puzzle was before him. In his moment of revelation, Bruce Wayne was happy. He would take the mantle of this creature who had repeatedly marked him and become something somehow more and less than human. Donning the familiar cape and cow for the first time, he called his new creation the Batman. His reminiscing over the Batman stands erect on the gargoyle's edge. He takes a deep breath and falls. And I quote, as he fell when he was a child, as he will for the rest of his life. All right. Thank you very much for the last origin synopsis we will ever do on this podcast. I'm choked up. <laughs> I can't handle it. I can't handle it. Do it again. Do it again. Do it better this time. <laughs> I'll try. I'll read it like William Shatner. <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay, we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> um, first, before getting into my notes, uh, I do not have the trade paperback, Secret Origins of the World's Greatest Heroes. My copy of The Man Who Falls is actually in a digest size comic collection that was released with the Batman Begins Deluxe DVD set. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the one that you have, or do you have that copy? I have both. Okay. Um, I do have that, though, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I forgot to pull that one out, but yeah, I, do, I still have that one. Yeah, this is the version that I have. This is the first, That was where I first read the story. Uh, it collects this story, The Man Who Falls, and then the original Batman story from Detective Comics 27, and then the first chapter of Batman The Long Halloween by Jeff Lowe and Tim Sale. Uh, so it's got those three stories in it. And because of that, because of that's where I've read it, like I always think of this story in comparison to Batman Begins. 
you know, the famous sort of the line that kind of repeats as a theme in that movie, you know, when Thomas Wayne asks Bruce, why do we fall? And he has that line, you know, so that we can learn to get back up or so that we can learn mm-hmm. to pick ourselves up or something. And it's this very sort of inspirational fatherly advice type of thing. And, and that is definitely not the same message that Denny O'Neill is presenting in this story. No, um, the metaphor of falling is not meant to be a a, a learning opportunity. It, it's about Batman's obsession, this moment that marked Bruce in his childhood that he has never recovered from, that almost predates the death of his parents. Uh, it's it's really the, this moment of falling into that cave. And that fear and that sense of helplessness that has driven him and was punctuated and exacerbated by him being an orphan. But it, it really it sort of sets up this idea that he's he's on this destiny. He he cannot control it. And I don't know if I like that, but that is the post-crisis Batman. Mm-hmm. I mean, the post-crisis Batman. Like I mean, we we talked about this uh, a year ago, more than a year ago, yeah. um, when we did Secret Origins issue six. Is that Bruce Wayne's decision to become the Batman was his choice? He was clearly a sane man of sound mind. He was a, he's a superhero, so you know he puts on a costume because he wants to fight crime and make the world a better place. Post-crisis, the Bat Office really made this concerted effort that he put on the cape and cowl because he, in one sense, was Batman as soon as his parents' bodies hit the ground. Mm -hmm. And there are elements of that that I like, but there are elements of it that I don't like either. So it's, I don't know. What did you think of the story as a whole? Well, I think I think you're right. I think you know the the post-crisis Batman, you know, is definitely a damaged person. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think Batman before, uh, and a lot of that's keying off the Dark Knight Returns. Uh, you know, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, which obviously you know it came out right as Crisis, pretty much right as Crisis was over. The Dark Knight Returns came out, and uh, we talked about that when we did uh, the Secret Origin in issue number six. Was right as Dark Knight number four came out, and I think and Watchmen number one came out, and I mean it was this really strange uh, the transition period that DC was in. Uh, but yeah, I mean it, it it's 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 interesting because you know the the Nolan movies are you know noted for being really dark, and they get progressively darker and more cynical. I think, but Batman Begins is actually downright uplifting. You know, if you go back and watch it, uh, in 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 view of of some later versions or darker versions of Batman. I mean, you know, it's oh, yeah. uh, the, the depiction of Thomas Wayne is completely different than what we get here. I mean, he is an ass in this story. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a horrible. I mean, you know, you just, I mean, I, I understand sometimes a parent, I know sometimes when your kids get in trouble and, and that you're afraid they might get hurt, eventually you get kind of, you know, what were you thinking? You know, you could have been killed and you get, maybe you get a little... Uh, rough with him as far as, you know, maybe yell at him a little bit to a point just to try to protect him. But, man, he doesn't even give him any comfort in this story, which just uh, – there were several stories that when O'Neill was um, bad editor where they'd flash back to Thomas Wayne, and it really made you wonder, why are you so choked up about this guy getting killed? <laughs> you know, it's like your mom, sure, but this guy was an ass. You but, know, it's, But even he does – I mean his mom is certainly trying to comfort him and extending that, but he says – Bruce felt no warmth or relief from his mother's words. 
Like, right, yeah. there's already that cold dis- – that's why I kind of think, like, this was the moment that created Batman before the death of the parents, yes. as far as the story goes. Because it's like he's – once he came out of that hole, his world was different, and it was sort of like he was already alone. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, the, the idea of Bruce falling into the cave came from the Dark Knight. And we see Thomas – uh, you know, in that scene where the Waynes are, they're out on the lawn and Bruce falls through the cave and, and Thomas doesn't seem nearly as, he's got the mustache, which was a Miller thing, but uh, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't seem to be as much of a hard ass as he is here. I mean, it's, it's, uh, which I mean, I guess in a way that's another thing of maturing things, you know, his parents weren't perfect. His dad wasn't, you know, this gallant crusading doctor that was perfect that, you know, also was Batman, you know, that wore a Batman costume and stopped criminals that tried to rob a charity Halloween ball or whatever, you know, (laughs) I mean, you know, which, which we'll get into that, you know, that some of the quote unquote sillier aspects of the origin that they jettisoned, but, uh, and then eventually in some versions came back, but, you know, I understand them trying to make the Waynes a little more human, but, you know, I think in some ways maybe they went a little, O'Neill went a little overboard here with that, but, uh, and it's it's interesting, you know, I talked about the, the transition period between the old DC and the new, the post-crisis, and, and, and you're still seeing that here because you've got a very, very Bronze age looking Batman in the present here. In the version I've got, the original version I looked at from that, that very newsprint trade paperback. I mean, the, the Secret Origins trade paperback is printed on regular comic book newsprint. <laughs> it, it's it's the old, it's like the first version of the Death in the Family that they put out. And actually, I got this off the newsstand, believe it or not. Oh wow! Yeah, I was at the drugstore uh, where I got my most of my comics. But uh, Batman is in the very light blue cape and cowl, and of course, it's drawn by Dick Giordano, who drew his fair share of you know Batman stories in the Bronze Age and inked. A hundred times more, you know, so, so, I mean, you've, you've got this bronze age looking Batman and then, you know, you have flashbacks to the very Mazzuchelli looking, uh, (laughs) Batman year one. And there's quite a few panels that, that Giordano just swiped wholesale (laughs) from Mazzuchelli and, uh, Ed Hannigan from the, the shaman storyline. And, uh, but Giordano wasn't, you know, he, he, you know, if you go back and look at his stuff, he always did that. I mean, he wasn't afraid of doing that. You know, he, a lot of times he'd, um, if he did a solo pencil and ink job, uh, some of the, like his Alfred, he would lift from an Alfred that he had inked of Neil Adams, you know, yeah, yeah. Some, something like that. So, I mean, that, you know, that's par for the course. I've always really liked uh, Giordano, Giordano's Batman solo stuff too. It's, it's, I mean, it's very iconic. It's very, it's the Batman of the, it's the merchandise is very close to the Jose, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name, Batman. And, um, you know, and he inked a lot of that stock art. But, you know, I I do like this, but I do. There's a definite shift in the tone, like you said, of of Batman as the superhero with the tragic backstory that pretty much had gotten past that. I know uh, in another story that Giordano illustrated where he depicted the origin the murder of the waynes was to kill a legend by alan brennert mm-hmm. uh that was in detective 500 which of course me and rob have talked about and talked about and talked about on podcast but in that story bruce wakes up and says i haven't dreamt about my parents murder in years mm-hmm. <laughs> what a switch right right every time i close my eyes i see my parents die you know i mean it's i mean that's in you know in six years we've 
we've went from the pretty healthy, mentally healthy Batman to this very damaged little boy, really, you know, and, 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 you know, O'Neill's, he's wrapping that up in a bow, really, because he's saying, you know, directly Bruce fell then, and he's been falling ever since. So he's really putting a pin in it, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I think my preferred Batman is somewhere in between, because like if you go with the popular theory, certainly the newer theory that I think comes from this era and has only been enhanced through stories more recently, this idea that Bruce Wayne, billionaire playboy, is the facade, Batman is the real personality. I have issues with that because if he's really that damaged, if he's really like that stripped down, then it makes me question whether or not his actions are truly heroic. Mm-hmm. Because if he's a sociopath or a psychopath and he doesn't actually know the difference, if he if he's if his grasp on reality is that strained, then I, I don't know if if I can hold him up to the same kind of virtue and and, and honor that I would hold to the pre-crisis Batman. So I, I think what this story does is it certainly says that once Bruce Wayne's parents were killed, he was on this trajectory and he would never be the same. But he wasn't Batman until he put on the costume, and that was really more of, it's still more of an extension of his will. That's something that he needs to focus. Like, the the Batman is almost a tool for Mm. what is driving him, and and this obsessive need. And I think that still, that allows the real heart of the character to be somewhere in between the extremist, angry Batman and the flaky playboy, you know, billionaire, uh, like, outsider. What you have in the middle is somebody who is a little bit damaged, somebody who'd never really recovered from the grisly murder of his parents' death, but also somebody who is still very human and does need to affect certain, you know, costumes or certain attitudes in order to convince the world that he is this darker, angrier, crazier being of the night. So, yeah, I, I think my, my Batman is wounded, damaged, but not crazy. Right. So. Yeah, that, that's mine, too. I, I think, you know, we always, you and I do, we always go back to the animated Batman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think they really did a good job of showing that, yes, Bruce Wayne was affected by his parents' murder. He still has trouble with relationships due to that to a point, but he's also not so damaged that he can't, you know, have a father-son relationship with Dick Grayson. He can't have a surrogate father-son relationship with Alfred, you know, and Tim. And and, and as the series went along in the, the new Batman Adventures, he seemed a little, even though he had a bigger family around him, he seemed uh, a little more gruff and, and, you know, it's like age. It kind of made him even more just resistant to, uh, you know, showing emotion to a point. But yet he still was surrounded by, you know, all these partners and and everything. So that's kind of the version I prefer because, you know, I I think the Batman that totally disregards the fact that he watched his parents murdered in front of him is, you know, nowadays especially is that's maybe asking a little too much to think that it wouldn't affect him, you know, and, 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 you know, but but the version where he's just he is a complete man child 
uh, a, a damaged man child that's that's acting out some vengeance fantasy is not the Batman I want to follow. You know, this kind of rides that line. I think it. I don't think it goes too far into it. But you know, Denny O'Neill was obviously the, he was the editor of the Batman books uh, during this period and 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 up through like 2000. So I mean, he was the steward of of Batman. And, uh, you know, some of the, the storylines that are reflected in this origin, I mean, you get um, you get his own shaman story that he wrote for Legends of the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. uh, which which I, I always thought that storyline was interesting because and I, I kind of like to get your opinion on this. What do you think about the uh, the bat totem mask, you know, that, that the shaman's got on? Uh, it's more than a little forced. <laughs> um, I, I think it's. It's a weird and kind of unnecessary callback. You've already got him seeing the bats as a child and then the bat flying through the window again, sort of cementing that. So I think the shaman with the, like, sorry, he's been marked by the bat or he has the spirit of the bat in him. That's a little bit on the nose. And it also, it's been a while since I've read the story, but I remember really liking it. I, I've always thought, even just as an editor, I've really liked the handle that Denny O'Neill has on the character. I love the prose in this, like the the voice he has just in the first couple pages um, mm-hmm. when he's just sort of narrating, but the, the type of voice that he has. And I I've also liked like when Denny O'Neill would do like book adaptations of comic stories and everything. I've always I've always liked that. I, I don't know. What do you think about the the bat mask for the for the shaman? I, I like the story too, and and I remember it being a you know a good start to Legends of the Dark Knight. But even then, in in 1989, I felt okay. How is this any different than having Thomas Wayne wear the bat suit? <laughs> ah, yeah, that's a, a connection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's like okay, you're doubling up on the bat influence. You know, it's like right. you know. Is every, you know, Miller already added him seeing the bats in the cave and being frightened of them. And then you've got to have him, the bat, either coming through the open window or crashing through the window, which, oddly enough, that shows Bruce going out on the town in his disguise where he gets roughed up and, you know, runs into the prostitutes and Catwoman. But it does not show him bloodied and ready to die as Batman Year One did, you know, when he's he comes back, the police arrest him. He gets out of the handcuffs, the car wrecks. He's beaten and bloodied, but he has to pull the cops out of the burning car so they don't die. And he makes his way back to Wayne Manor. He crashes his car into another car in the park in the garage. And he's, you know, saying I could ring this bell and Alfred will come. But if I don't figure out how to do this, I just I want to die. I don't care. And then the bat crashes through the window. But here he's in his robe or smoking jacket, <laughs> just like 1939, you know. Yeah, we, uh, see, we see him silhouetted, but it certainly looks like he's in his dad's chair, just reading the journals, reading the books. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, it doesn't look like it's this moment of life or death. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how they and in Shaman, I went I, I just went back and flipped through the first five issues of Legends of the Dark Knight for this recording. And and in that they they show that scene again. And I mean, it shows him, uh, you know, come back. He's bloodied. He's ready. He's bleeding to death. It's the same deal. They do add that he had the uh, the book uh, that said criminals were a superstitious, cowardly lot. And every time I say superstitious cowardly lot, I get the musical from Batman Beyond in my head. Uh, <laughs> superstitious cowardly lot, uh, you know. So it's 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 odd that well, Shaman was coming out right when this came out. 
Shaman hadn't even wrapped up yet. Right. So it was like, I think on issue four or five of, I think issue four, and it was like up to issue five of Legends of the Dark Knight. So, you know, it's interesting that they went ahead and pulled that into this origin before, you know, of course, O'Neill was the editor, so he could say it sticks. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's part of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, it, it, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting, uh, you know, and you get, you get Descartes, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, from, which is the, the sort of third reference that this, this story borrows from. We get the shaman, we get Batman year one, and then Descartes, who was introduced just earlier, again, just a couple months earlier in the middle of 1989, mm-hmm. uh, in detective comics, 599 and 600. And those right. stories were written by Sam Hamm, the guy who yep. wrote the script, the, like the final script for Batman, the movie. And Descartes, of course, is the alias that Liam Neeson uses in Batman Begins because, of course, spoiler warning, he's really a Raz or Raish, as you should say, Raish <laughs> according to Denny O'Neill. So uh, let's not get into that again. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, obviously, David Goyer and Christopher Nolan really did <laughs> look over this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even a scene where Bruce is uh, with some uh, homeless guys next to a barrel with the, you know, the typical homeless guy barrel with the fire inside. And it made me think of that scene where Bruce leaves Gotham and, and trades his coat out to that homeless guy. And, uh, you know, he's and he, and he after he gets roughed up by Falcone's men in the in the club. And uh, it made me think of that. I'm like, man, they really <laughs> there's a reason this was in that digest. It was <laughs> uh, this this book comics all over. Uh, Batman Begins. <laughs> what did you think of the scene when Bruce is like on the college campus when he's dropping out and he's talking to the other two students who were like clearly, you know, like of the of the 70s? Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I, for some reason, just looking at that, I just assumed that the blonde girl was supposed to be Julie, Julie Madison. Mm. And and I'm, I don't know if I'm basing that on anything other than a, as a sort of parallel of the pre-crisis origin. Like, she's never named. But for some reason, I just thought that. I, I didn't think that because although she was blonde in the Clayface story that we covered, uh, she was always black-haired in the Golden Age. So True. I didn't think that, but it could be. And and I always think that part, the part that shows him on the campuses and when he goes to the FBI, that seems to be a holdover of the Bronze Age or the Silver Age. Uh, because, you know, that used to be... I mean, it's it's hard to imagine, but Batman studying in the Orient or whatever you want to call it, going to Tibet or Korea or wherever he went to the temple in the mountains to learn, you know, basically to be a ninja is something fairly new here. I mean, that's it just kind of seemed like it. I can't even somebody might be able to write in. Well, they won't be now because this last episode, but somebody, <laughs> somebody might be able to tell us exactly where that started but i mean i know there was a couple of times that like in the storylines of in the in the late 80s where batman would mention studying martial arts and it it just kind of like slowly became this thing that that batman did that he went and studied and he's the he's a master of all forms of martial arts but that was kind of a slow build-up i mean it used to be when they showed a batman origin like in the untold legend of the Batman that he went to college, found out that he couldn't be a policeman because they were hampered by regulations, which is what you get here with his FBI application. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he studied chemistry. It showed him lifting weights, of course. And he pretty much learned everything he knew he needed to know to be Batman 
either by going to college or studying with other detectives here and there, even dressed as Robin, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and so, but the whole thing of, you know, Master Kurgi and all this, this is fairly new as far as being put in the official origin story. It feels something like Denny O'Neill was almost reappropriating like the same idea of his Richard Dragon character. Mm-hmm. And then also like tying in the inspiration of, of the shadow. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if it feels sort of like a mix of the two, if that, if he had that in mind when he was taking over the character. Right. And I think, you know, some of it might have been, you know, I know Denny O'Neill was, wasn't he Frank Miller's editor on Daredevil uh, at Marvel? That sounds I know, right. And I know he wrote it after Miller left. So Ninjas got popular <laughs> <laughs> in the early 80s, obviously. Yep. And then, of course, you know, then, you, of course, you had the Turtles was a was a spoof of Daredevil and everything. And, you, of course, you had Ron, Ronin and everything. But that's a good point with the shadow because he did study in Tibet and learn how to cloud men's minds and all that stuff. Uh, but I, I think there might have been a little, you know, hey, it's Miller and everything. Everything Frank Miller did with Batman at that time was great. So, you know, more ninja stuff. And I do recall like ninjas showing up in um, in some of the storylines around this time. And and, you know, just like a group of ninjas, Batman would. I remember some I forgot who wrote it, but there was a Jim Aparo drew it. And like this group of ninjas, Batman was fighting them in a kitchen in this like mansion somewhere. And he ended up like catching, throwing stars in a frying pan and then whacking one of them upside the head with the frying pan <laughs> which i always thought was cool because it's like you know you expect him to get in some kind of you know martial arts pose and mm-hmm. take his cape off and throw down it's almost like an indiana jones you know shooting the cairo swordsman thing you know it's like now nah, i'm just gonna whack you with this frying pan but but not to get off topic but it's it's interesting that you know you, you're you still got the college scenes and uh, you know bruce even acting like the fop Already, I mean, it's like you kind of got to wonder, well, why is he if he doesn't know he's going to have a secret identity? Why is he acting that way? I guess maybe he just doesn't want people questioning what he's doing. He doesn't want people to to catch on, you know, to the fact that he has this this mission. I mean, I think it's interesting in this story that both Leslie Tompkins and Alfred seen in one panel, very tiny uh, when Bruce comes back to Wayne Manor, but Leslie Tompkins had been established in the comics. Denny O'Neill edited as, you know, helping take care of Bruce. Uh, and, and Denny O'Neill had created the character back in the 70s as the woman that comforted him the night his parents were murdered, but she didn't help raise him pre-crisis, but he went and saw her every year on the anniversary of his parents' death. But, you know, he had established Leslie Tompkins. All you get is uh, that he, at 14, was able to flanangle his way out from underneath his guardians and leave Gotham. <laughs> 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 which is which is kind of interesting and it's like wow 14 that's that's pretty young you know uh to strike out on your own but uh it's 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 kind of you know it's it's that that really kind of after i got to think about it, well they added the part with the card and they added the part with the totem mask and but they left out all this about alfred and and leslie after they you know and I know there's parts of Batman Year Two that Mike W. Barr wrote that kind of seemed to be out of canon pretty quickly, uh, and uh, so maybe that was why Leslie wasn't wasn't mentioned. She'll show up again later in the Bat books as you know having helped raise Bruce, but it is kind of weird that they left her out here. Yeah, and maybe it was just the, how much room he had to write and how, like the amount of available space and what he chose to focus on. I do like the fact that we get, you know, a little bit of his 
Eastern training with Master Kriege, a little bit of his bounty hunting training with the tracker in Alaska and with Ducard and everything. I This is the one element that I didn't like about Batman Begins, which was this idea that one man basically built Batman for Bruce Wayne, that he learned mm. everything from Ra's al Ghul. That's something that never sat with me, and I think it's because of reading these stories over this era, which is what O'Neill focused on, which is that no... You get Bruce Wayne for almost a decade just traveling the world, learning all of these different skill sets from all of these different masters and being able to, you know, specialize in all these things. So there's not one person who can dismantle the Batman, like kind of take down everything that he's built. So he doesn't have one antithesis in Rachel Ghoul. That's one of the reasons why I loved the Zatanna episode of Batman, the animated series, because mm-hmm. it's like, sure. Yeah. Bruce Wayne would learn about theatricality and costume design and escapism from somebody. Why didn't he learn it from a stage magician? Of course. Right. Um, so yeah. I, I liked that. I like the connection that they built for that animated series episode but yeah and i mean the different and I, I don't think the same sensei or master showed up twice in any comic book <laughs> during <laughs> during this period i mean master kurgi might have came back if he did by name i i don't recall i know it i know there was a uh, an armless master that showed up in i think it was uh night's end because yeah. uh yeah because because i think lady shiva kills him and and uh, and then, you know, it's the whole deal where Bruce has got to, you know, he's got to get his mojo back on. He wears a different bat totem mask uh, in that. And uh, so he can get his get his training back, basically. And uh, so there's another master there. And, uh, you know, that's uh, in the animated series gave us a, a master that that uh, in, a, in an opponent in Kyodai Ken. Yeah. And I know that was cool. And, and but yeah, so I like that, too. The only thing we got in Batman Begins really was they showed Bruce like. Where he was stealing from his own company, and he got arrested by some like Chinese police or something. Remember, and mm-hmm. and he, you know, he's like, I didn't steal anything. I did, you know. It's like, yeah, you kind of did, even though it's got your name on it. You still got stuff. But I mean, they kind of alluded to he was learning other things from other people. But I like that he learned his uh, most important skills from other people too. I, I'm I'm with you. I think a, a you know a, a bigger list of of uh, senseis and teachers is is a is a better way to go and you, and you kind of get that impression it, it says he spoke to or studied under you know the greatest detectives in the world and in this origin and i know around this time mark wade and i think brian augustine wrote uh, a detective comics annual that uh, showed harvey harris the, the post-crisis version of harvey harris the detective he he worked with that uh, when he was Robin in the Silver Age, uh, when he dressed as Robin, he worked with Harvey Harris. They actually show him again around this. It's around the same time. It's like 89 or the 90 annual. I can't think which one it is. But yeah, so so they they really did establish during this period that he had multiple teachers, mm-hmm. which I thought was cool. All right. Before we wrap this up, what do you think about the most surreal Easter egg in this story, which is the name referenced by the FBI director or the FBI agent? Oh, Ephraim Zimlis Jr. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was awesome. And I, I meant to write that in my notes and I forgot. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. that was a, This was, what, uh, two years before he played Alfred? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Two and a half. So, yeah. Of course, he was on a TV show called The FBI. Yep. Uh, he was the lead. Uh, I've never really seen that show, but I know of it. But uh, yeah, that was how how weird was that? <laughs> <laughs> I got to that. I was like, wait, what? 
<laughs> and then, yeah, because I had to look that up. I was like, oh, okay, using the FBI. Yeah, I've I've never seen the show either, but I was like, why are they referencing? Okay, okay, I guess. I was like, but Alfred? <laughs> like, I had to like put my brain in order. I was like, okay, which one of these things came first? Right. Yeah, and it's 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 odd because, like I said, Alfred's got like a one blink and you'll miss it panel appearance, but yet the actor that played him on the animated series gets a name drop. <laughs> really strange. <laughs> Okay, so uh, there is another reason why I asked you to cover this story on this episode. Uh, On one hand, it is symbolic of returning to the show's roots, how it began, the full circle crap. On the (laughs) other hand, it is a natural segue to our next project for the Fire and Water Network. Later this year, and we don't have a fixed launch date yet, people, but I'm hoping we can do it in November or December so that it can still technically be the 30th anniversary year. Anyway, coming soon, Chris and I are starting a new podcast called Batman Nightcast. It's going to celebrate the Batman comics published after Crisis on Infinite Earths, starting with Batman issue 400 and then moving forward with Batman and Detective Comics. And presumably, assuming we live that long, Legends of the Dark Knight and Shadow of the Bat, maybe Robin and Catwoman, along with the numerous Batman-related original graphic novels published in the late 80s and early 90s, including The Killing Joke, Son of the Demon, and Gotham by Gaslight, just to name a few. I am really excited about this show, Chris. What about you? Uh, Any excuse I've got to talk about Batman and to talk about Batman with you is a good thing, so I'm, I'm stoked. Good. We clearly haven't done it enough. No. (laughs) (laughs) And as because this is Secret Origins, I'll give the listeners a little bit of a taste. This show has been brewing for more than a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can actually tell you the, the genesis of it a little bit. After we recorded our Batman section for Secret Origins issue six which actually we recorded that before before the first episode of Secret Origins came out. After we recorded that, I, I started, I mean, we were in the preparation for that. I was going back and looking at a lot of my favorite Batman stories. And then after we talked about it, I was like, oh man, I remember these great stories and I remember these. And I just, I felt like revisiting all of these old Norm Brayfogle comics that I remember growing up with. And it really put the bug in my ear. I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to do a podcast about the Norm Brayfogle Batman era. And I was like, well, it comes right after the era by Mike Barr and Alan Davis. It's like, <laughs> maybe I can stretch it a little bit to include that. Oh, but at the same, that's, I mean, the same time as Batman year one. So what if I folded both Batman and Detective Guys? So it, it just sort of spiraled into this thing where I realized I was describing, okay, I'm basically going to do from crisis to crisis, a Batman <laughs> podcast. So I'm basically just going to do the same thing that Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor have been doing. Uh, and I actually, I reached out to Michael Bailey and I said, because at the time he was doing Bailey's Batman podcast, I'm like, are, are you planning to cover any of these issues or, or this type of thing? What do you think? And he's like, no, go ahead. He gave me his blessing. He's like, good, do it. That sounds like a great show. I'll be the first person to subscribe. Maybe he didn't say that. Maybe that's just the way I'm remembering it. But now <laughs> he's on the hook. So yeah, it was right away. Like as soon as Secret Origins was coming out. I was having this idea for doing this, you know, this Batman podcast. And then it just became a question of who do I want to do it with? Who is my going to be my regular co-host? And it was really, I mean, it was always going to be you. And I think I asked you back in September of 2015, over a year ago at this point was when I first asked you about it. I had been sitting with it for a couple months but we'd talked about Batman so well on that first episode. I loved our discussion. We'd already recorded several times, and I just knew that you had the love for this character that I wanted to share and I wanted to work with. So 
yeah, uh, this is people like we're, we've been just sitting with this like looming, like yeah, eventually we're gonna get to this show for over a year, um, <laughs> and I'm really excited. And and half of that time I think was spent coming up with a name, and I think I came up with 50 possible names for the podcast, up to and including from Bat Crisis to Bat Crisis, which I thought Michael Bailey would have fun with. Um, and, and like I said, yeah, I came up with 50 names, and Chris is like, what about Nightcast? And I'm like, shit, that's better than any that I thought of. <laughs> I gotta be good for something, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I'm, it, I'm, I'm really excited cause, uh, about it, because that was such a, like we said, that was such a, it's such an exciting period. There's There's such extreme... Extreme highs and lows. There, <laughs> I mean, we're definitely going to hit a few lows early on. Yeah, I mean, it's they're trying to they're trying to figure out like 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 we said, uh, I think we said before on 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 episode number six, they're trying to figure out just who Batman is. You know, Denny O'Neill comes in and and he obviously was a very influential, important creator of Batman in the seventies, and trying to figure out well, okay, you know, th- after the Dark Knight. And you know, and 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 Miller and everything. What's uh, what's this new post-crisis Batman going to be like? And uh, it's he will admit that you know he he made a few you know tactical errors here and there. He feels like and and but there's some great stuff there. I mean, there's some. I mean, for for uh, the few bumps in the road, I mean, there's some fantastic stuff that some of my favorite Batman comics. Period from that era. So I'm I am very excited about it. Me too. And I'm, I'm really excited to look at essentially the life and death, in one case, of two different Robins. And this was something mm-hmm. that Tom Panarese and I talked about on Secret Origins 50, where if you look at this era, you've got one Robin that it doesn't look like they really had a plan for when they started. And that led to Jason Todd going out down a road that uh, I'm of the opinion that he was doomed from the beginning, just because mm. of the, the origin, the way they set his his post-crisis origin up, that he could never truly grow into being the Robin that we needed. And I think they course-corrected. They learned from their mistakes when they did Tim Drake because they gave him a slow burn and they built him up over a year before they put him in a costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm excited to see that we're starting with Batman issue 400 and then cover the legends tie-ins. And then after that, we're hoping and the, the plan is for to release a new episode every two weeks and every episode will cover one issue. It'll be, you know, alternating one issue of Batman, one issue of detective comics, uh, for however long we can do this. Uh, I would like to get us up to around the nightfall era, but that might take us 20, 30 years. I really have no idea. I haven't even looked at the calendar that much. Yeah, I haven't done the math either. It's, it's I really don't want to. I just kind of want to take it, you know, uh, month by month to a point. I mean, I, obviously, we got to look ahead a little bit, but, right. uh, you know, just just enjoy it. Just just kind of di- re-digest them because I, I bought them as they came out. I know I know you're a couple of years behind me there, but but uh, I bought them off the stands and it's it's been a long time since I really, you know, re- went and reread every um, every one of them. I, mean, I go back and reread the Bar Davis stuff quite a bit and the Grant Brayfogle stuff, but the other stuff in between, you know, I've, it's been a long time since I've I've touched it again, and and you know, it's it'll be nice coming at it from a from a fresh perspective, and you know, I'm I'm definitely going to try to you know keep a completely open mind, and I think podcasting kind of makes you do that after you, even when you don't want to, it makes you critical in 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 both good and bad ways. You're more critical of things that you don't want to be critical of. You want to love them unconditionally. <laughs> and then it also makes you stop and think, okay, 
I kind of get where they were coming, you know, from with this now. When I was at 13, it pissed me off, but now I kind of get where they're coming from, <laughs> you know. So I'm I'm looking forward to looking at it with you know a fresh set of eyes and and giving it giving everything a fair shake. And I am looking forward to trying to find the good in Max Allen Collins from. And <laughs> well, then, you know, and then you know that's to, my sticking point. <laughs> and then trying to find the good in the Jim Starlin run, and then. <laughs> Actually, actually, that's probably that's probably the biggest blind spot for me right now. It's been so long since I've read the Jim Starlin issues. So yeah, we'll see. It'll be a fun adventure going through those. Uh, I am really looking forward to that. Yeah, so listeners can look forward to that at some point before the end of 2016. Batman Nightcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Chris, I I will talk to you again in the near future, but uh, for now. Thank you very, very, very much for being one of my most frequent and most, I mean, the only other guest who was on the show more than you was Shag. And for quality's sake, I mean, you, you, you never let me down. So. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm I'm sorry Shag was on here more than me, but uh, you know I I've I've loved the hell out of this show. Even if I was never on it, even if if we weren't on the same network, I would listen to this show. I mean, it was a Monday staple for me. You know, it's you know come in to work, and uh, you know I, I look forward to going to work on Monday just to listen to Secret Origins. I'm not <laughs> that says a lot um, because you know I mean this uh, this series. Even though I didn't, I didn't buy every issue off the stands, and I regret that. And I've, I've picked up quite a few in the fifty cent bins or dollar bins. So we don't really have fifty cent bins right here, dollar bins, uh, over the years, and and filled in quite a bit of it. But just like we were talking about Batman, this this series caught DC in such a transitory period because you had remnants of post crisis, and they had the new, the the I mean pre crisis, and you had the new post crisis. And, of course, there were things that it was in such a state of flux because there were things that would be contradicted, you know, the next time the origin came up. And, you know, people, like we said about some – you guys have been covering about some of the origins, like the, the, the Silent Night changing things for no good reason and stuff like that. So it was, it was interesting, but it really, it really captured, you know, DC Comics, not just the main superheroes, but you had characters like Jonah Hex and Silent Night and Black Hawk and – and and you know the western some of the western characters and it really encapsulates dc comics in general and the fact that you know you had creators that were older creators that worked on it. you had guys like murphy anderson and you had new guys that coming in i mean you know just f- straight out of art school and you know things like that that went on to bigger careers you know guys like chris sprouse or something that was in the chemical king story and, you know, it's, it's interesting because you kind of mirrored that with, you know, your your guests because you had quite a few new guests, the new podcasters on the show, people that had never podcasted before mm-hmm. or had barely podcasted before. And then you had veterans like Michael Bailey that had been at it, comic podcasting for 10 years. And, and then then you had, uh, you know, guys like me that have been at it for a couple years. So, I mean, it was a really good mix, just like the comic. And I don't know how the hell you did it. I don't know how the, <laughs> I don't know how the hell you almost every week had a new show with at least one guest. I do my show with my wife, and I don't. we barely have time to <laughs> record a podcast every two weeks. So how you, how you manage to wrangle that, I'll never know. But it, 
you did a fantastic job. Everybody, uh, everybody asks me how I did it, and I always give the same answer. It's really, really simple if you sacrifice friends, family, and work. <laughs> well, there you go. That's the secret. <laughs> Have no life, and you too can become a successful podcaster. <laughs> My words to live by. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm going to miss it, and... Uh, I think you've done a fantastic job, man. I, I just want to say that and get all mushy with you and stuff. Uh, but <laughs> but, but uh, you really have. And it's it's. Uh, I think this is one of those shows that uh, this just needs to be. Uh, this needs to be like just the perennial trade paperback, you know, shelf of, <laughs> you know, there's Watchmen, there's the Dark Knight, there's New Frontier, Kingdom Come, there's Secret Origins podcast, you know. That's... Just pull, pull it out and listen and that's good comic podcasting. And if you love DC comics and you don't listen to this show, then what the hell's wrong with you? You know, listen to this show. <laughs> hey, that is, I'm glad you waited to the last episode to compare me to Watchmen and the new frontier. Cause if that had come up weeks ago or months ago, whew, I, I might've meltdown. <laughs> anyway, you were here from the beginning. I'm glad you're here for the end. Thank you very much for being on the, this final you know, special episode. And listeners, believe it or not, we still got a lot more to cover on this episode. Next up, we're going to do listener feedback from Secret Origins, episode 50. Darkness! No parents! Continue darkness! More darkness, get it? The opposite of light! Black hole! You know, I don't know why you bothered sending me this uh, script for your intro. You know I know this. But, alright, whatever. <clears throat> Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain, or building, or pet, from the DC Universe. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series. Struth! Secret Origins episode 50 featured a Dick Grayson story with guest Tom Panaris, The Flash of Two Worlds with Dave Weeder, Johnny Thunder with Michael Bailey, Dolphin with David Ace Gutierrez, Black Canary with Rob Kelly, and the Space Museum with the Irredeemable Shag. On Twitter, the episode received 65 favorites and retweets from Aaron Moss, Abel Mavada, Alan Middleton, Alejandro Sevilla, Annette Humphrey, Ange, Anthony Durso, The Aquaman Shrine, Between the Pages, BoldOutlaw.com, Bruce Wayne, Cario Carrasco, Cindy Womack, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comics in the Golden Age, Dan, David Gallagher, David Gutierrez, Dr. G, Nerdologist, DS and RS, Ed Moore, Eduardo M. Freyer, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, The Hammer Strikes, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Staten, Joseph Crawford, J.R. Horrorbrain, Justice's First Dawn, Kara Zorel, Kevin Culp, Connell, Laurel, Let's Talk Aquaman, Longbox Crusade, Lucille Smith, Mario, Mela Experience, Michael Dabb, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Wayne, Pablo Ventura, Pensiero Negativo, Phil, 
Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Rift, World Spine Podcast, Russell Burbage, Scott Rowland, Sean, Cell Sergeant Art, Silver and Gold, Siskoid, Tom Paneris, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Warlord Worlds, William Estep, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Coffee and Comics blog replied, I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Sniffle. Dan said, congrats on a great finish to one of my favorite podcasts. Scott Rowland said, so sorry to see it go. Relatively Geeky tweeted, excellent work, Ryan, and not just on this episode. And then some kind of phallic emoji. Oh, wait, 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 that's a thumbs up. Okay, got it, thumbs up. Gabriel M. Cox tweeted, thanks, Ryan, and guests for a fantastic ride with the Secret Origins podcast. I can't wait to listen to the final episode. David Gallagher said, congratulations on a brilliant and exceptional podcast finale, Ryan. BoldOutlaw.com tweeted, fun podcast, I've listened to several episodes, love the Black Canary origin. Diablo Frank said, finally finished the Secret Origins podcast, and as an act of Black Lightning contrition, I will co-host any Spawn podcast on request. That is certainly some kind of idea. Richard Field said, thank you, Ryan. Ange tweeted, finished the Secret Origins podcast. So bittersweet. Congrats, Ryan. And then a few days later, he tweeted, don't know if I ever said it, but thanks for sugar walls. Anything for you, champ. And Longbox Crusade said, just listened to this episode. A great finish to an excellent podcast. I laughed, I cried, and have been inspired by the awesome host and guests. Over on Facebook, the last episode got 88 new likes and shares from Aaron Moss, Abba Daba, Al Sedano, Andy Capellish, Anthony Durso, Beware of Monsters Podcast, Billy Lacasse, Brian Green, Chris Franklin, Christopher Luke, Christopher Willette, Chris Phelps, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Daniel Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, David Foster, David Weeder, Dale Dale, D. Huntsman, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gord Tolton, Grant Richter, Greg Arujo, Greg Barr, H. Daniel Reibolt, The Hammer Strikes, Harlan Freilicker, The Headcast Network, Head Speaks, Isabel Godin, Ivan Marchina Jr., Jacob Edwards, Jared Driscoll, Jared West, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Carl Rohner, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Leslie Trigg III, the Longbox Crusade, Lorraine Daly, Martin Gray, Matthias McBride, Max Romero, Michael T. Jones, Michael Lake, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Mike Peacock, Nathaniel Wayne, Neil Patterson, Neil Whitney, Noah Tipton, NYC Comic Geeks, Patrick Daly, Pat Sampson, Robert Guy, Rob Kelly, Robert Ward, Rob Williams, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Silver and Gold Podcast, Sinan Ayub, Siskoid, The Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, Steve Leach, Task Force X, Tim Wallace, Tom Paneris, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzins, Van Z, Vinnie G. and Freddy III, and Xavier Golden. Sean Brock posted, This makes me sad. I will miss the podcast very much. Beware of Monsters podcast posted, I have been loving this show. It's well worth starting over and listening to again. Pat Sampson posted, I hope there will be a compilation song playlist to go with this great podcast. You know, if I ever make a Spotify playlist of the soundtrack to this podcast, I will let you know. David Ace Gutierrez said, what's it going to take to keep this going? Rob and Shag and Fishnets? Uh, whatever effect you think that might have, David, you're probably wrong. 
Gregorujo posted an image of the Daily Planet headline, More Secret Origins. Kyle Benning said, Closing time. Sean Walsh said, It's time. Gord Tolton said, Now this was a Secret Origins issue to go out on. He later posted, Ooh, Roy Thomas is so gonna kick your ass. I am assuming that Gord had just listened to David's song before posting that. Shag said, heartbreaking. Sean Meyer said, I love this and I hate this. H. Daniel Reibolt posted, took me two days to hear it. I will miss this show. Billy Lacasse posted, it was a fun ride. I finally just finished the old podcast I missed. Can't wait to hear this one. Hopefully the fun carries over to the podcasting hour. Martin Gray posted, so many congratulations. This is a podcast to cherish. Van Z said, thanks for covering the series. It was so much fun. Thank you, buddy. Dale Dale posted, thank you for a great podcast. Looking forward to upcoming projects. Michael Lake posted, thanks, Ryan. You made me want to pick up all 54 issues of this series. Well, that's awesome, Michael, but you might want to wait until after I go over the favorite and least favorite issues on this episode. Neil Whitney posted, I'm only on episode 20 and have a long way to go till 50, but I'm sad to see the show is ending. I'm happy for how good the 20-plus episodes I've heard so far. You have done a good job and your guests have been great, even Shag. And Abadaba said, so sad I found this podcast so late. Happy to have found it before it was over. I received Facebook messages from a number of people, including Jared Driscoll, who said, Secret Origins was my favorite series when I was in my early teens, and I was very sad when it was canceled. You did a great job with this podcast. Sean Dwerden wrote, Just finished listening to the last episode and wanted to say thanks for the fine work that you have done on this show. You inspired me to go out and buy some of these issues and avoid others, and I'm looking forward to reading them and then listening to your take on them. I'll continue to use your show as a resource, I'm sure, for years to come. Good luck with your next endeavor, and I'm looking forward to listening to your future projects. Take care. And Keith G. Baker wrote, Just wanted to drop you a note to congratulate you on the Secret Origins podcast. Always top-notch. And your latest one had me laughing hard enough to almost wreck during putting on the Ritz, and tear up enough to almost wreck a second time. Good thing I'm a hell of a driver. Anyway, thank you for all your work on the show. It is obvious it was a labor of love. I also received an email from Michael Bradley, who was my guest on the Doctor Occult story way back on episode 17. Michael wrote, Episode 50 dropped into my feed, bringing with it a bit of melancholy because I know it means we've reached the end of the series. Since it might be a day or two before I can carve out the time to listen to the supersized finale, I'll send this now. Each and every episode of the Secret Origins podcast has been a joy to listen to. It's clear you put a lot of time, work, and love into each episode. Congratulations on a job well done, and thanks for letting me be a part of it, both as a guest and as a listener. I enjoyed reading or rereading through each issue of the series as a companion to the show, and I'm genuinely sad the podcast has come to its end. Thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Michael and Keith and everyone else who wrote in or commented on Facebook and Twitter. And now onto the Fire and Water website comments, which you can find and read and respond to if you want at fireandwaterpodcast.com. At present, the website post for episode 50 has 67 comments. Now, some of them are my responses to the comments. A whole lot of them are David Ace Gutierrez trolling Rob Kelly, just trying the same old tired jokes about Rob being rich and going to the Kubert school. Bits that, honestly, were never funny, but oh well, David's just going to keep on trying and trying. For his part, Rob kept us updated with his progress through the episode and the state of his expedition until he was left cold and alone. His one real comment was calling it a real baller move to have Tom Panarese read the entire story when the show is already over four hours. 
It's called stalling, Rob. Stalling. Chris Franklin knows how it's done because he left detailed comments for every segment of the episode. I've shortened his comments a bit. Loved, loved, loved the discussion on the Robins, who are some of my favorite fictional characters. I so hated Max Allen Collins' firing of Dick as Robin that it tainted any appreciation I might have had for the new Jason. I do think Jason 2.0 suffered from having a new origin shoved into his backstory, but his history otherwise more or less continued. His lack of a supporting cast certainly didn't help, and as you guys pointed out, that was one of the best part of Dixon's excellent Robin run with Tim. The Flash of Two Worlds story would make more sense in the Flash 50th Anniversary special, but that issue had a story of each Flash that tied together, resulting in the introduction of a future Flash written by Mark Wade, one he'd use in his Flash run later and drawn by Mike Parabek. It's a great issue. I've always liked the art in the Johnny Thunder tale, and that one-panel cameo of the Lone Ranger is pure gold. He looks a bit like Clinton Spilsbury in The Legend of the Lone Ranger. I recently got an antenna receiver, and I've been watching a lot of MeTV. And yes, Michael, Chuck Connors has a jaw that would make Dick Sprang's Batman green with envy. I did a spit take on David's comment about Dolphin looking like a mix of Hee Haw and Rima the Jungle Girl. Brilliant. When Rob's arms get tired from flying the Alan Brenner flag, I'm right there behind him to pick it up. The Black Canary story is beautiful, period. I know Roy Thomas mentioned in one of the All-Star Companions that he simply forgot about the elder Black Canary when he sent the JSA into limbo, but more than likely he just didn't think about her being alive. After Crisis, who really knew what exactly became of her before this? When we learned she was a separate character from the Canary we'd been following pre-Crisis, she was already long dead. Brennert made some tasty, tasty lemonade out of some seriously sour lemons with this one. I have to admit, being a superhero guy, the Space Museum and Johnny Thunder stories were the ones I was least interested in going in when I bought this back in 1990, but it's a perfect little slice of the Silver Age. I hadn't thought about the meta connection to the Secret Origins title, but it makes sense. Both Shag and Rob's closing comments got me a bit choked up, as did Ryan's reaction. I agree with those sentiments wholeheartedly, but I'll save them for another time. A fantastic final episode for a fantastic series. Thank you, Chris. Jeff R. said, Marvel did not have to undo everything Morrison accomplished in New X-Men. They chose to, and it was quite possibly the second stupidest decision that Marvel has ever made. No, the most stupid, because good stories actually came out of the Spider-Man retcons, and because the insanely stupid Magneto-can-be-a-good-guy idea that undoing Morrison's run was part of is just transcendentally dumb and keeps on happening. Sean Walsh said, had this issue begun and ended with the glimpse and unfinished business, I think it would have been a great way to structure the final issue of DC's Secret Origins. A Denny O'Neill prose tale with George Perez art, and the actual final fate of a classic DC heroine scripted by Alan Brenner would be a fine cap to any series. But your comments about the Space Museum finale, which also struck me for years as an odd story on which to end the series, made great sense of its placement, and honestly was the perfect way for the synopsis part of the podcast to end. Perhaps Jerry Conway reworked that Space Museum motto knowing that one day some wonderful maniac would research the series to make the connection. You know, that's what they call me, Ryan Daly, Wonderful Maniac. Sean goes on, and perhaps too, someday in the far-flung future, a young visitor to the Space Museum is shown an old MP3 player containing the Secret Origins podcast, and ponder how it was used to defeat the irredeemable Mecha Zombie Shag in his sadistic efforts to transform the multiverse into a giant Keith Giffen comic with 78 panels on each page. But let's face it, since the world will end because we will never get that Red Tornado secret origin, that future moment will be rendered forever as nothing more than an imaginary story. But what an imaginary story it could be. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Sean. I uh, really enjoyed that comment. Joe X said, you know what I just realized? 
Tim Drake is the Bruce Wayne from Alan Brennert's story in Detective Comics issue 500. Hmm, interesting connection, very interesting. Dr. Ange said, finished the episode today and really felt all the feels. This was a bittersweet show, realizing that this was the end. Congrats, Ryan. You deserve all the accolades you are getting. This was an immense endeavor, and you produced the podcast with the highest quality. And then Ange offered feedback on a few of the stories. I think Morrison didn't want the Flash of Two Worlds to go completely out of continuity, so instead of it being the origin of the multiverse, he tweaked it to become the origin of the Flash family. Given the upcoming Wade run where all the speedsters have a special bond, I like this story a lot. Can't say the same about the Dolphin one. What an omelet of weird elements. I have the showcase issue and would have preferred something more akin to that. Love the info about the space museum you guys gave us. Made me appreciate the story more. Thanks again, Ryan. Secret Origins was the first podcast I got to be a guest on. Hope I held up my end of the discussions. Every time, Ange. Every time. Martin Gray said, Congratulations on the 50th issue Spectacular. Is this the biggest regular series non-reprint DC comic ever? You know, it very well might be. Uh, I don't know how big some of the more recent Superman action or Detective Comics anniversary issues have been, like in the last couple years. But, yeah, 96 pages for a regular series issue without reprints? That might be a record. Martin went on to praise the Robbins discussion I had with Tom, and then brought up an interesting idea. He said, I wish there were a podcast which was simply one host and one guest discussing one DC character, team, or concept per episode. They'd be short, sharp showcases. Ah, too much alliteration there. Not requiring a lot of research, since the big character and story beats could guide the discussion to a place of fun opinions. I kind of love that idea. Now, of course, I couldn't be part of it. I've got way too much on my plate going forward, but that sounds like a cool idea for a podcast if anyone wants to bite. Martin then doubted our speculation that the Glimpse story was created for a lonely place of dying trade, asking, did DC ever create stories just for trade collections? Yes, the Batman story that Chris and I just reviewed on this episode. Finally, Martin wraps up his comments saying, Ryan, that was emotional, and I'm not surprised. You've put your heart and soul into this podcast. It's given me so much entertainment. Thanks to you for all the hard work and the guests for providing a different flavor of spice. And I am so honored I got to take part. You've created your very own space museum. Does that make Shag skeets? Uh, Shag is more of the glory hound. He would definitely be the booster gold, which would make Rob the skeets. And I'm sure it pains him to hear that, but yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for that comment, Martin. Paul Hicks shared his secret Secret Origins podcast origin. From its very beginning, I was a sporadic listener to the Fire and Water podcast, coming originally for New 52 reviews, then picking and choosing episodes that appealed to me based on subject matter. When Mike Garvey and I started doing Waiting for Doom at the start of 2015, I immediately developed a greater appreciation for the skill of effortlessly chatting and the effort of skillful editing. I began listening to Shag and Rob more often. When Shag mentioned he was going to be talking about the secret origin of Firestorm on this new podcast, I was willing to jump over and hear his thoughts. Thank you, Shag number one. I had planned to take the approach to the show that I took to the comic, selectively tuning in to hear about characters I liked. But there was something about the host's dry wit and warm delivery of carefully chosen words that provided insights into the stories and art. I went back and listened to the previous episodes, then was there front row for every episode after that. Now, I can read a schedule, and I knew that there was a Doom Patrol issue coming up. I contacted Ryan to see if the slot was open, but he told me that the Doom Patrol blogger bloke had gotten that gig. I was disappointed, but I think that contact may have prompted the Reister to have a listen to Waiting for Doom, which he still pretends to do to this day. 
We chatted about characters that were available, and I managed to snag the coveted Hawk and Dove spot. Also, when I listened to the Challengers, Deadman, and Doom Patrol episodes, I had to concede that bloody Doug Zavisha was charming and eloquent, and we started tweeting and had him on Waiting for Doom, and damn it, Doug is now one of my best online friends. In the 2015 end-of-the-year episode of Waiting for Doom, I named Secret Origins as my favorite new podcast. A Twitter chat with Shag led to him pegging me for the ICE segment, which was the first time Rai Guy and I cast Pod together. Thank you, Shag number two. By that stage, I had become a full-blown Rai Rai addict as I went back through his old Flowers and Fishnets and Deadmoth and Spies podcasts back catalog. Among the many great things the Ryanator does in his shows is, he is incredibly well-prepared and organized. That's usually true. He knows what to cut out and what to keep in. He has great comic timing and spots an opportunity for a great gag a mile off. He subtly keeps his guests on track. He never, ever bores his audience. He picks the best music choices. Damn right. He makes you feel comfortable as a guest and brings out the best in your thoughts. And he works harder than any other podcaster out there. I'm in awe of his podcasting, and being aware of what he does makes me a better podcaster. It's because of all this that I actively hassled him to let me podcast with him regularly on whatever he had coming up next. Hello, Night Force. This comics podcasting community has led to a bigger connection to the comic fans than I've ever had in my life. I live in a country town in Australia and only personally know three people who like comics. But now, I have dozens of friends around the globe, and I can literally chat about comics any time of the day. Honestly, I'm struggling to fully articulate my thanks to you, Ryan. So cheers for everything, and three cheers for you. Uh, that was a very good comment. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, the damnedest thing, Paul, is every one of your points is something I consciously and actively work to achieve. Uh, it wasn't instinctual, I don't think. It was work. Uh, and to have you or anybody recognize it and articulate it so clearly makes me feel that the work really came across in the product, and that makes it worth it. So, thank you. FKA Jason thanked me for 49 excellent episodes, and also that one that he was on. I've had so many thoughts about so many points made since the beginning of this podcast, but I seldom commented. But I have listened to every segment of every episode and thoroughly enjoyed all of it. Thank you for giving me a reason to revisit one of my favorite series from DC Comics. Then about a week later, Jay left another comment, I just finished listening to this episode. It only took me 10 days. Great work as always. I got a little choked up during the last segment, but to be fair, I almost always want to cry when I hear Shag speak. Ryan, this was a fantastic podcast series. I discovered it when I got a Twitter message from you asking if I'd be interested in covering the Captain Adam origin. I blew through the existing episodes rather quickly and loved the show from the first episode. You know all of this already, of course. What you might not know is the number of fantastic podcasts and blogs I've discovered as a result of listening to Secret Origins. I don't think you've ever had a bad guest. I can honestly say I learned something new with every episode. And before your show, I considered myself something of an expert in DC Comics. I realize now I'm a small fish in a big pond. Thank you for the Secret Origins podcast. Thank you for choosing great guests, great music, and great comic series. Thank you for hours of entertainment and education. Thank you for producing a quality show. If my own show is 1% as good as any random Secret Origins podcast, then I have made a great show myself. You set a high bar. I love this podcast and will miss it, but I am happy that this won't be the end of quality shows from your camp. I am now and will forever be a Ryan Daly fan. Jesus, man, thank you. I knew reading through these comments would inflate my ego a bit, but damn, we're reaching critical mass here. Uh, Thomas Favi said, Bravo, sir, take a bow. 
Okay, see, that's nice and simple. Complimentary, not too sappy. Dial C for comment. Now, a new commenter said, This series has been a treat. I'll never forget stumbling onto Secret Origins after finding the Fire and Water podcast. I'm a DC fan, though I had no idea there was a comic called Secret Origins, and when I started, I think when episode 5 dropped, I knew that this was something special. That work you put into each episode definitely showed, and every discussion on each issue was a treat to listen to, and the choice of music was fun. I always tried to guess which song was going to be used. I agreed and disagreed with certain things that were discussed, but I definitely enjoyed waiting for the next episode. And the characters, some familiar, some obscure. I loved all of them. Yes, including Johnny Thunder. I'll miss this series, but it was a fun ride, and I can always listen to them again. The rest of Dialsy's comment was very interesting. He approached his list of favorite secret origins a little bit differently than all the other commenters, and I will read and respond to Dialsy's list during the next segment when I cover everyone's favorites. Uh, But getting back to the feedback, Nathaniel Wayne said, Not only did the series go out on a high note, this podcast did as well. Now stop making the rest of us look bad by being so damn good at this. Midnight, the podcasting hour had better suck or I'm coming for you. Yeah, cross your fingers. Jeff Nettleton said, One of the things I really liked about this podcast, beyond exploring the material, was that it was a community, both in the comments and on air. It wasn't the same team all the time. It was a rotating cast of people who do this regularly, and those of us who just have an email and like to put our two cents in in the comments fields. The series came along during a rather dark period of my life, with a lot of work-related turmoil which progressed over a long period of time. It provided a sunnier outlet and helped me deal with a lot of crap. Things are much better now with a job I enjoy. Coupled in that was the fun of getting to participate and put my money where my mouth was. I lived in terror that I would bore the heck out of people, but responses were positive, which made me feel even better. That's the strength of this. It's a community that may bicker about plot points and character, but is supportive of the people. Very well said, Jeff. As always, very well said. Clinton Robinson sighed heavily and then said, Damn you, Ryan, I was riding the feels roller coaster like crazy this episode, especially during the feedback section. I laughed my ass off at your song choice for your reflections on Roy Thomas. I damn near cried my eyes out when you listed all of the guests on the show, especially realizing that I had contributed to something so incredible as this podcast. And then I almost peed myself laughing at your comment about your wife in this podcast. And that's not even getting close to the touching Brian's song-style display between you and Shag. Holy Hannah! I don't know that I've felt this touched by a series finale since I watched the Next Generation episode All Good Things back in 94. So thank you. Damn you, but thank you. You touched this old comic fan's heart, and this series shall be missed. Shag was right. This is a podcast series that will get revisited over time. It's getting harder and harder to get through these than I thought. Jimmy McGlinchey said, First off, Ryan, congratulations on reaching the end of the series. You put a lot of heart into each and every episode, and they were all funny, witty, and informative. My hat's off to you for your efforts. A wonderful podcast series which will stand as a benchmark for what all podcasts should be. Come on, guys. Uh, Jimmy says, With regards to the individual entries, the Robin story was excellent. It is so rare to see an illustrated pro story like this that it is a pity there aren't more of these in comics. To my mind, the only ones I can remember are Grant Morrison and John Van Fleet's The Clown at Midnight from Batman issue 663, I love that story, and Denny O'Neill and Marshall Rogers' Death Strikes at Midnight and 3, which I read in The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volume 1. Same here, and I also love that story. Uh, Jimmy added, I found Tom's reciting of the story and Ryan's editing of the Dire Straits song Brothers in Arms as background very effective. 
Uh, Jimmy commented on the other stories and then said, The final story of the Space Museum sounded like a good way to end the series for the reasons Ryan and Shaq gave. What might have been a nice way to acknowledge the end would have been a cutaway from the end of the Space Museum story and show a hallway leading to a museum exhibit titled Origins of the 20th Century Superheroes, The Secrets Revealed. Maybe a little bit too on the nose, though. Chad Bulkelman said, Ryan, when your show first hit the net, I didn't want yet another show to try and keep up with. But podcasting about Secret Origins promised to be a varied lineup all within my wheelhouse of DC Comics. So I felt I was obligated to try out the show, and I'm glad I did. As I've told you many times, one of the things I admired about your show is that each and every episode sounds the same. The layout is meticulous, the plan is in place, and you adhere to it as best you can. Even down to the music selections, there is purpose and care in every single episode. Your knowledge of comics exceeds my own, which, let's face it, isn't that hard, so I'm always learning things, even on episodes where I was allowed an appearance. And trust me, allowed is the correct word. Every time I was invited on the show, I felt nervous, a fact I can't say about any other show I've appeared on. No offense, guys, but I'm sure you know what I mean. The quality of this show was such that I felt by simply being allowed on its airwaves that I dumbed down the audience, that I didn't prepare enough, that I didn't know enough. Each time you invited me back, I was shocked. It was a pleasure and a breeze to podcast with you. Nerves always fell by the wayside once things were underway. I admire your efforts, I admire your format, I admire your lineup, I admire your schedule, I admire your sheer power of will so much that I've made you my self-styled muse for my own show, and quality and consistency of my Action Comics Weekly show notwithstanding, that has to mean something. Not just that people love what you do, but that you inspire them, that you motivate them. That is what your show and you did for me, and I'm happy to call you a friend. Before I go on, that does mean a whole lot, Chad, but to everybody else... Chad might single white female me, so just be on the lookout. Uh, he does continue, Lastly, one of the very few times I podcasted with the late Sean Engel was on this show. Despite Sean's long-running Just One of the Guys podcast about Green Lantern, Sean and the Lantern cast didn't team up quite as much as I would have liked. He graciously allowed me to co-host an episode of his show, and he appeared on the Lantern cast once or twice. But our episode together on Secret Origins is my very favorite team-up between Sean and I. And I re-listen to that episode often and think about how great it would be to have him back to talk more Green Lantern. And that is a memory I get to relive thanks to you. This show will serve as an archive, a podcasting template to help model and structure other shows to come, and I cannot think of another show more suited to that task, nor a guy more worthy of that honor than you, Ryan. Congratulations on this achievement, and I look forward to the next endeavor you undertake. MTC said a worship... MTC actually went back and started talking about the stories, which is a nice change of pace. I kind of need this. A warship was torpedoed and sunk in the dolphin story. This made me think of the USS Indianapolis. My biological grandpa, Vincent Udell Anderson, was on that ship and pronounced lost at sea. My grandma Betty was pregnant with my mom, who never got to meet her biological dad. Betty later remarried a wonderful man named Roy Thomas. Not that Roy Thomas. I'm not sure what a small girl was doing on that warship, as that seems pretty reckless. I loved this episode. I thought the stories were great and that the guests and yourself were fantastic in your coverage. I echo all of the mushy stuff that was said and is being said about how great the show is. Congratulations, Ryan, on having a vision and seeing it through. This was an awesome accomplishment, and I look forward to listening to earlier episodes that I haven't heard yet until I have heard them all. And then MTC asked a very interesting question that I spent a while thinking about today. The question, or rather the request, is... 
I would like to know at least five comic books that are on your wish list as a direct result of wanting to see more of the characters from their stories in Secret Origins. That is very interesting, uh, and it got me thinking a lot, because I read a lot for this podcast. I researched like crazy, not just looking at Mike's Amazing World and different blogs and wikis of characters. I always at least tried to read something with the character. So I found comics and back issue bins, I ordered old books online, I found digital copies, and I can tell you five books that I already bought as a result of talking about them on the podcast. Not books that I read in advance, books I purchased after I talked about the origin, because either I didn't know about it until the guest recommended it, or it just wasn't available at the time, or maybe something in our talk just struck me as fascinating. So here are five books that I already got as a direct result of talking about characters on the podcast. The Manhunter trade paperback that collects the entire Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson story. You can probably find it on InStockTrades.com for like $4. I think that's what I paid for it. Number two, Showcase Presents Jonah Hex Volume 1. Number three, The Blue Devil Summer Fun Annual. Number four, the Post-Crisis Mr. Miracle series from the late 80s and early 90s. And number five, the Black Lightning trade paperback that collects the original series by Tony Isabella and Trevor Von Eden. I actually pre-ordered that book the same night that Luke Giaconetti and I did our Black Lightning segment. As soon as I hung up, I went to Amazon and I pre-ordered Black Lightning and Tales of the Batman by Alan Brenner. What comics are still on my wish list? First on the list is the Legion of Substitute Heroes special. Uh, I haven't found that. I want it. Second, I could say almost any Legion collection, any showcase or archives or omnibus volume. Uh, third, almost any issue from the 1980s Spectre series, especially towards the beginning of the series, like issues 1 through 4, because I do have issue 5. Uh, fourth, almost any Phantom Stranger issue. I've got the two showcase volumes, but I would like to have more of them in color. I've got five or six of the original stories, but I still need to fill out that. Uh, I've also never read the Kupperberg and Mignola Phantom Stranger miniseries. And the fifth comic that I would like as a direct result of this coverage on the podcast, more Jonah Hex. Anything with more Jonah Hex. Uh, and finally, Diablo Frank left his usual chapter-length comments expressing all of his thoughts about all of the stories. He starts by breaking down all of the different Robins, including Jason Todd 2.0, which is Damian Wayne, and also the other Jason Todd 2.0, which is the resurrected Jason. Frank then said, I made it to the second page of The Glimpse before giving up. I despise prose stories in standard comic books, especially ones told in a straightforward third-person perspective. If I wanted that, I'd crack open a novel with quality vetted by an editor in that field. I wanted to know if there were any significant additions to the Grayson's lore, so I appreciate the professional quality audiobook version offered here. Of the Western Johnny Thunder story, Frank said, Marvel has better integrated their Western characters into the core heroic universe than DC, so as bizarro Michael Bailey, I can more readily recall examples of their offerings than DC's. Before reading the Johnny Thunder secret origin, my sole exposure was his Whatever Happened To, which I initially misremembered as a Trigger Twin story two episodes ago. Oh wait, this is the Clark Kent type who becomes a gunslinger and married that red-headed cowgirl named Cinder? Cinnamon? And they gave birth to the Trigger Twins? No? I know Jonah Hex, and I can tell you the basics of Scalp Hunter and Brett Maverick, or Batlash, but it starts getting awful fuzzy after that. The Weiss art wasn't up to his usual standards, and the basic plot didn't thrill, but the little flourishes like the learned torturer and the parody origins helped. Uh, then Frank went through the Dolphin story, the Black Canary story, and the Space Museum story. 
And so I finally finished the podcast on the fourth day, and now I'll have to come up with new excuses not to comment on or listen to other comic book radio shows, since I no longer have to devote hours every week to telling everyone why they should really hate the DC heroes one origin at a time. But like I told Ryan when I spoke to him earlier this week, this show was an okay time suck, I guess. (laughs) An okay time suck. High praise indeed. Actually, Frank did have more to say, and after we recorded a segment for my Power of Fishnets podcast, we talked a little bit about the end of Secret Origins, and this is part of that conversation. And uh, I just wanted to say, too, while I've got you on the line, what an extraordinary accomplishment the Secret Origins podcast was. I I can tell you now, I could never dream of doing something like that, in part because I just have so much less love for the human race than you do. Uh, (laughs) But I also don't have the patience. I don't have the people skills. And and what I love is that, you know, to to piggyback on what Rob said on your the 50th podcast or 50th issue podcast, not only do I think that you've got the best comic book podcast that I've ever heard, but I also think you're the apotheosis of Fire and Water, where (laughs) Who's Who was, you build a community around two guys talking about a universe everybody loved, but with Secret Origins, you managed to include that entire club within the podcast itself. It's sort of like George Lucas with Star Wars. As important as you are to the Secret Origins podcast, it's kind of bigger than you because all of the people who love it kind of have a bit of ownership to it because you brought them onto the show. And because we all are invested and have great love for this universe. But you gave them the form to do that. And I don't know, especially as we're all aging out and dying in this fandom anyway, I don't know if anyone will ever have an accomplishment like you had with Secret Origins. So I love that you're going to put it down like old Yeller behind the barn instead of finding a way to continue it like everybody freaking wants you to do. I like I've tried to tell you ways you could do, but of course you've always probably rightly ignored any advice I ever gave you, which is why you have tremendous success and I am, you know, <laughs> the uh, let's call us uh, uh, alternative options. I'm the Shasta. I'm the RC Cola of podcasting by comparison. But I, the love that people have for the podcast and the engagement that they have with it, I don't know of anyone else who's ever had that. And if you hadn't created that, we would all be lesser for it. So I just have to congratulate you and thank you for all the work you put into that show. I, you're too flattering. That's too much. I, I really do appreciate it. And I wanted to mention it to you too, because we were here. Like, as we, as I was coming to the end of it, I mean, you, I consider you a very good friend of mine within the podcasting within this community. And even, way to put a nastiness on the motherfucker <laughs> within the podcasting community. Now, you're not going to stay in my place anytime. Soon. No, I'm just, I'm just giving you. I, I got to screw with you because I don't want you to start getting choked up like you did with Rob. I mean, I don't want to be in a bathroom with you or anything. <laughs> But within, you know, as long as, you know, there's 2,000 miles between us. and But no, I, like, I I was looking at, like, the list of the, the last couple episodes, and I was really, I wanted to get you on again. And it just, like, things were just, because I, you have been a big part of sort of, like, the inspiration of the blogging and the podcasting. And it felt weird that almost 20 episodes went by since your last appearance, and I really wanted to bring you back for one of the last ones. And if had I known how much you loved Ambush Bug, I would have done that. But Shag but, loves him too, and I didn't want to take that away from Shag. And I, I've got, but, I've but got my own vehicles like, if, if I want to do that. I known, I think I, I actually, I would have had you two do the Ambush Bug segment without me because <laughs> I, think I could have gotten away with the excuse of just saying, you know what, because it's Ambush Bug, 
it's fine if I'm the, not the host for that episode. But that's just like, it. You were the voice for the vast majority of the audience, though. And, yeah. and uh, so many of the guys got on there and agreed with you and, and saw your points. And they all had valid points, too. Fucked a lot of them. But they all had valid <laughs> points. And so uh, the show needed that. And that's, that's you know, again, as, as, while I was joking about you being the George Lucas of the show, at the same time, the show doesn't work without you because you are going to have a greater a critical analysis and a greater engagement with those stories than anybody else could possibly have because nobody else has done 35, 45, 55 episodes looking at each one of those stories the way that you'd look at it. So no, you'd be depriving your people of your presence and you needed to be there. Oh. Plus I'm and, and you'd have nothing to worry about because I'm on every episode of the show. <laughs> okay. So this was it's just this by was proxy be- through your mouth my words come. So I'm on all of them. I got I've got no complaints. So again that actually I you're again you're saying you're you're taking the words out of my mouth because I was going to make that point on the Coda episode. You know, Shag can say that he was on 8 or 9 episodes or whatever. I was like if there was one regular co-host on the show <laughs> it was Frank because you always talked about the characters and their stories as much as I did. You just did it through text in the comments section. Well, well that and you're God and I'm the devil. You're the one who's selling these characters and trying to find the good in them and I'm the one who just goes in there and gives them a colonoscopy every single time. And oh so my God, when you, you talked just... about Black Lightning, I almost threw my computer down. I was so fucking pissed at you. I was like, Frank, the champion of the minority characters, the one black character who gets a secret origin in this book and you shit all over him. I was going to, oh, I was, I was going to quit. But that's, that's, you, you can't do what's expected, but also I just really don't like Black Lightning. Uh, you know, it's just, he just, I, for all the reasons I said, I, I've, I've never written one of those with the intention of getting somebody's goat, unless I specifically said so. But at the same time, uh, I know, you know, I, I just think that it's good to have that contrast. But I also think that it's better to have that contrast filtered and stuffed to the back of the show and having your commentary when things are completely out of line. So that was the best. You know, I'm best in small doses in that respect. So good job. That was the smart move. Someday we'll just sit down. We'll talk about John Stewart, Steel, Black Lightning, and Cyborg. And we'll just... That's what DC Bloodlines is, man. And I, yeah, you may yeah, not have noticed it, but I, I literally will take comments, massive comments I left for you, and I'll adapt them. I'll do the audio version of those comments I left for <laughs> you and then turn them into podcasts. So literally, DC Bloodlines is, is a spawn of the comment forum of Secret Origins. I know that this is an incestuous family tree, but yeah, I mean, it, it's great because I, I talk about those characters at length and it's like well why the hell do i have to come up with something new i'll just go and read what i left you, you know you <laughs> back. so unfortunately those guys didn't get that treatment but that's what dc bloodlines exists to do is i want to talk about all those characters that aren't superman and batman and wonder woman that the dc universe is so much bigger than those characters and the, the stuff that resonates the most with me is usually the stuff off the side like ambush bug so I, I, I that's one of the reasons why i was such a little bitch throughout the entirety of secret origins is because those are all the big guys like i like the littler guys uh, so when I'm going to do my Bronze Tiger podcast, which will probably be this season, that's what's going to happen. I've already recorded the Vixen one. That's going to be out in a month or roughly, no, week and a half, three weeks. What, three weeks. what are you covering in the Bronze Tiger stuff? Uh, Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was uh, Richard Dragon. I thought I was, 
I didn't know if it was from an actual like a Bloodlines annual, like one of those issues, oh, no, no, no. or if it was something else. Yeah, it's, and that's something I didn't articulate well earlier on too. And I'm going to make it more obvious this season. Is the intention was always to start with Bloodlines and then go outward. And what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do now is one episode is a Bloodlines character, one episode is a different type of character. And okay. in fact, you may notice that I think the only segment in the entire Secret Origins that I never commented on was Captain Comet's backup in the first annual. And that's because I literally, after that show came out, I recorded my response to your episode, and it's going to end up being a DC Bloodlines podcast. It's just been sitting in the tank for a long time because I didn't have a place to put it yet, but it's like, I'm doing a whole freaking show on Captain Comet. I'm a big Captain Comet fan, and I've read the original story, or at least a chunk of the original story, so it's like, I'm going to go do this the other way, but I don't think people needed Captain Comet back-to-back. I don't think there's enough of a thirst for Captain Comet to have that stuff too close together. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals with one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Alright, I don't think that was too bad. Now, uh, let's just blast some kiss before we get back to work. You gotta live like you're on vacation
I was still recording. Okay, on episode 50, I asked listeners to submit their favorite Secret Origins covers, individual stories, and whole issues. I'll go over everybody's submissions, but first, here's what I thought. The first category in the Secret Origins superlatives is the best cover, and I have ranked my top five with one runner-up, and after that I have my list of three worst covers. Starting off with the good, the runner-up for best cover that narrowly missed out on the top five is Brian Bolland's cover to Secret Origins issue 7. This is the Guy Gardner and Golden Age Sandman issue where the cover is essentially a black and white pencil and ink, except all of the inks have been colored in this forest green color. And now the top five. Number five, Secret Origins 48 cover by Kevin McGuire. This is the one where classic Batman and Robin are scaling the wall with Ambush Bug above them with a water balloon. Number four, Secret Origins 11 cover by Jerry Ordway. That's the Power Girl and Hawkman cover with them flying together over a cityscape. Number three, Secret Origins 50 cover by Ty Templeton. The final issue with Batman, Robin, Black Canary, Jake Garrick, Barry Allen, Dolphin, and Johnny Thunder packing up the wagon cart. Number two, Secret Origins 17, cover by Kevin Nolan. Adam Strange and Doctor Occult against some kind of otherworldly monsters. I want to read the team-up story based on that cover so bad it looks awesome. And as a bonus, I just recently received a copy signed by Kevin Nolan, sent to me from Little Russell Burbage of Pig's Knuckle, Arkansas. I don't even think Russell knew how much I liked that cover, but I am so grateful for his gift. It is awesome. Thank you, Russell. And number one, my favorite cover... Secret Origins Special, covered by Brian Bolland. The Penguin, the Riddler, and Two-Face. No one has ever done them better. It looks like a poster. It should be a poster. Maybe it is a poster. But on the other end of the spectrum, we had those covers that weren't so good. I only picked top three, or bottom three as the case may be. Number three, Secret Origins 46, covered by Elliot R. Brown. I know what they were going for with the blueprint cover, but it just doesn't make me want to pick up the issue and read what's inside. Number two, and I know a lot of you are going to fight me on this, I don't care, Secret Origins Annual number three, cover by George Perez. I hate this cover. It does not work for me. And number one, the worst of the worst, Secret Origins Annual number two, cover by Carmine Infantino and Michael Collins. This is the flash cover that looks like the printer ran out of red ink or somebody bumped the machine while it was scanning. I seriously, I can't get over how bad this thing came out. It's like two guys in the printing office were on coke and came up with this crazy idea for a cover that if you wear these sophisticated refractive 3D goggles, the cover art will look like the flash is running toward you and that's what they shipped. And only after that, they sobered up and one of them asked, hey, are those refractive 3D goggles a real thing that people had access to? So, congratulations to all of the amazing covers that graced Secret Origins, and to those covers that made the worst list, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Okay, on to the best story category. This was really hard to nail down. More than a hundred stories, and I don't remember what I said about every one of them, so this is just based on how I am feeling at the moment. Top five, but there are three runners-up this time. Said runners-up are The Secret Origin of the Justice Society of America from issue 31. I know this was a sort of contentious story when I reviewed it with Shag and Kyle and Al. It might not be as good as the original, but as the gathering of the world's first super team, I still I really love this story. I want to see the movie version of this story. It feels epic, and I didn't have that big of a problem with Spectre's journey into the afterlife as the other people did. 
Another runner-up is Requiem for a Gunfighter, The Secret Origin of Jonah Hex. I love this story, but since it's not really an origin so much as an epilogue that happens to show the origin, I couldn't put it in my top five. Still a great story, though. And the final runner-up is Ghosts of Stone from Secret Origins issue 46. This is Grant Morrison's crazy-ass explanation for how the Justice League moved into their secret sanctuary. It's retro, but crazy and sophisticated, and also a little sad. Uh, Great story, almost made my top five. So, what did make the list? Number five, The Untitled Origin of the Martian Manhunter, written by Mark Verheiden with art by Ken Stacy. What can I say? I love this character and I love this story. I'm sure the fact that it reminds me so much of the late Darwin Cook plays a part in why I like it, and maybe I am a prisoner of the moment, but I love it. Number four, The Secret Origin of the Legion of Substitute Heroes by Ty Templeton from issue 37. Wow, this story surprised me. These characters surprised me, but I love them. I mean, you heard me say it before, this story made Chlorophyll Kid my favorite hero of the 30th century. Number three, Unfinished Business, written by Alan Brenner with art by Joe Staten and Dick Giordano from Secret Origins 50. The origin of not one, but two Black Canaries. You heard me say it, this was the first Secret Origin story I ever reviewed. There is certainly that personal investment in the story, but it's also really damn good. In fact, there's only two stories I can think of that are better. Number two, The Crimson Avenger by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan from Secret Origins issue 5. This is Roy Thomas's best work, hands down in my opinion, because it's one of the few stories that he's not lifting from a previous source. The Crimson had no previous origin, which meant Roy Thomas had to create one, and he did it masterfully. All the elements are there. The prototypical pulp hero with the fedora and domino mask? Check. Late 1930s New York? Check. A Halloween party? Check. Orson Welles' freaking War of the Worlds broadcast? Big ol' check. And did somebody say criminals dressed as frog aliens with Tommy guns? All of that, plus the art of Gene Colan, who is probably my favorite comic book artist of all time. Go back and reread that story if you haven't. Which leads us to the number one best story in Secret Origins. If you were listening closely, this should not come as a surprise. The Little Clubhouse That Could, written by Gerard Jones with art by Kurt Swan from Secret Origins 46. The story of Fortress Lad. All I can say is, never give up. So what were the worst stories of the bunch? Well, I'll try to go through these a little bit quicker because I don't like dwelling on the negative. Runner-up, a princess story written by Bob Greenberger with art by Rob Liefeld from Secret Origins 28. This was the Nightshade story, and I just found it boring and kind of pointless. Number three, Tower in the Sky by Marv Wolfman and Vince Giorano from Secret Origins 46. That's the Teen Titans Tower story, and yeah. Number two, The Saga of Chris KL99 by Joey Cavalieri and John Workman from issue 43. Bad story on every level. And number one, and it is no disrespect to Paul Hicks or Dr. Ange or any of the Hawk and Dove fans out there, but my least favorite story in all of Secret Origins is still Bonds, written by Barbara Randall and Carl Kiesel, with art by Trevor Von Eden and John Koch, also from Secret Origins 43. Bad story, badly told. And that actually brings us to the next category, which is Best and Worst Issue of Secret Origins. This is the whole issue combining the cover and all of the stories published therein. And I will start with the worst so that we can end it on a higher note. And I didn't do a bottom three. There's really only one that matters, and that is Secret Origins 43. 
The worst two stories are in this issue, and the other story in it wasn't that good. The cover by Paris Collins was solid, no mistaking that good cover, but it was the hardest issue for me to read and get ready for. That, however, should not be seen as an indictment of episode 43. I liked talking about the stories with Paul and Ange and Professor Allen and Andy Capellish. Those guys made that issue worth talking about. And that brings us to the best overall issues of Secret Origins. First runner-up, Secret Origins 47, edited by Mark Wade. This was the Dead Legionnaires issue. I loved the Pharaoh Lad story and the Chemical King story, but this misses out on a top five because I didn't care so much about the cover or the Karate Kid story. Second runner-up, Secret Origins 5, edited by Roy Thomas and Bob Greenberger. This is the Crimson Avenger issue, and you're probably thinking, hey, if that was the second best story, why doesn't the issue make the top five since it's the only story in there? Well, that is sort of why. The story is great, but because it's the only story in the issue, all of the other issues with more stories feel like they have a little bit more content, more value. Anyway, it was close. But, the top five best issues of Secret Origins? Number five, Secret Origins 50, edited by Michael Urey. Talk about more content and more value. Six stories, including one of my favorites, The Black Canary Origin. Epic way to end the series. Number four, Secret Origins 32, edited by Mark Wade, the new post-crisis origin of the Justice League of America. Peter David scripting, Keith Givens' plot based on the original story by Gardner Fox, plus freaking beautiful art by Eric Shanower. Great issue, every page is amazing, and a pretty great cover too. Number 3, Secret Origins 2, edited by Julie Schwartz. The Blue Beetle of the past passes the torch and the scarab to the then-Blue Beetle of the time. I gave this one the edge over the Crimson Avenger because, again, it felt like more stories and more bang. Plus, Len Wein and Gil Kane ain't too shabby. Number 2, Secret Origins 46, edited by Mark Wade. This was almost hard to rationalize in my head. The all-headquarters issue sounds like an asinine concept for a comic. Plus, the cover is one of my three least favorite covers in the whole series. And the second story is one of my least favorite stories in the whole series. How does this issue rate as my second favorite overall? Well, because of the other two stories in it. The Little Clubhouse That Could is my favorite Secret Origins, and Ghosts of Stone was a runner-up. And frankly, their positives outweighed the negatives of the others. Those stories are so brilliant that I can ignore the other crap. And finally, number one, the best issue of Secret Origins. It seems so long ago, and I really don't talk about it that much, but if you want to talk about quality storytelling and production, pound for pound, the best issue of Secret Origins is issue 10. Four different origins of the Phantom Stranger. Do these names sound familiar? Mike Barr and Jim Aparo. Paul Levitz and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Dan Mishkin and Ernie Colon. Alan Moore and Joe Orlando. The cover is pretty good. I don't love it, but it's pretty good. I think it can do without the Legends tie-in banner. That's kind of dumb. But I can ignore all of that because the stories inside are so, so good. And that is why I think Secret Origins Issue 10 is the best issue of the whole series. But what did you think? I asked you to submit your lists of favorite covers, stories, and issues, and here are the responses I received. Martin Gray listed his five favorite Secret Origins covers. Issue 1, The Golden Age Superman. Issue 17, Adam Strange and Doctor Occult. Issue 31, Justice Society of America. Issue 39, Man Bat and... Animal Man! And issue 50, the final issue. 
Martin's favorite story was the Legion Clubhouse story that we covered together, and then the other four, in no particular order, includes Black Canary, the Justice League of America, the Phantom Stranger, and the Suicide Squad. And his favorite issue is issue 50 because it showcased the range of the DC Universe and contained one stone-cold classic in the Brennert State and Giordano Black Canary farewell. David Ace Gutierrez's favorite covers were anything that Kevin Nolan touched, so issues 17, 26, and 44. Also the Kevin Maguire one. Kevin Maguire did more than one, but I'm assuming he meant the Ambush Bug issue and not the Batgirl issue. Also issue 50 and issue 32, the Justice League cover. David's favorite stories were the origins of Dr. Occult, the Golden Age Superman, Golden Age Batman, Green Arrow, the Mud Pack, Nort, Poison Ivy, the Justice League of America, the Flashes, Suicide Squad, Black Canary, and the Justice Society of America, just because of the Valkyrie riding around without undies. Sean Walsh's favorite covers, Issue 10, The Phantom Stranger, 17, Adam Strange and Dr. Occult, 22, The Manhunters, 27, Zatara and Zatanna, 32, The Justice League, 41, The Rogues, 44, Mudpack, 46, The Headquarters Issue. Sean said those schematics, I'm sorry, I just love it. And Issue 50. Sean's favorite stories, The Ballad of Fortress Lad, I'll Never Give Up or Forget, Suicide Squad, The Four Phantom Stranger Origins, Sean's favorite gimmick in the whole series, the Space Museum, Bouncing Boy, Alan Brennert's wonderful farewell to the Golden Age Black Canary, The Riddler and his adventures in the Finger Junkyard, The Justice League's Secret Sanctuary, The Golden Age Superman, and Uncle Sam. Burt Barnard said his favorite cover, favorite stories, and favorite issue were all the same issue. Number 10, the Phantom Stranger issue. Brian Rosen's favorite issue was the Captain Marvel one, but he also enjoyed the Flash and Batman-themed issues too. Rob Kelly's Top 5 Secret Origins Covers, Issue 5, The Crimson Avenger, Issue 10, Phantom Stranger, Issue 17, Strange and Occult, Issue 30, Plastic Man and Elongated Man, and 37, Legion of Subs and Dr. Light. Clinton Robison listed his Top 5 Favorite Covers, Issue 4, Firestorm, The Bat Villain Special, Issue 20, Batgirl and Dr. Midnight, Issue 27, Zatara and Zatanna, and Issue 17, Adam Strange and Dr. Occult. Clinton also added another category, his top three favorite sound effects over the course of the series. Number three, Shazam! Number two, And number one, The Whip. Clinton said, They stay in my head for hours after every episode, so good going. You know, there was another sound effect that I think I only used one time, and it was subtle. I don't think many people even caught it. In the Zatanna episode, I used a dramatic effect when Emily Middleton said the name Cthulhu. I meant to return to that gimmick, but I don't think I ever did. Uh, I know we said Cthulhu a couple times during the annual with the Titans, but I forgot to use the sound effect. And Oh well, maybe I'll have use for it when I start my DC Horror Podcast. Greg Arujo's Top 5 Covers, Issue 37, Legion of Subs and Dr. Light, Issue 32, Justice League of America, Issue 48, Ambush Bug, Issue 50, Packing Up the Wagon, and Issue 1, Golden Age Superman. Diablo Frank's Top 10 Covers, Number 1, The Secret Origins of the World's Greatest Superheroes Trade Paperback, Depicting the Hero's Alter Egos by Brian Bolland. Number 2, Secret Origins Special Number 1, The Batman Villains. Number 3, Issue 11, Power Girl and Hawkman. Number 4, Issue 26, Black Lightning and Miss America. That Miss America is just for Vanzi. Number 5, Issue 8, Shadow Lass and Dollman. Number 6, Issue 17, Strange and Occult. Number 7, Issue 29, The Atom, Red Tornado and Mr. America. 
number 8, issue 44, The Mud Pack, number 9, issue 21, Jonah Hex and Black Condor, and number 10, issue 2, Blue Beetle. Frank also included his dishonorable mention, because how could he not, Secret Origins issue 7, Guy Gardner and the Sandman, which Frank says was ruined by the moronic use of a color hold. Chris Franklin's favorite Secret Origins covers, number 1, the Bat-Villain special, number 2, the third annual with the Teen Titans, and he said we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Well, that's for sure. Number 3, issue 1, Golden Age Superman, number 4, issue 50, the final issue, and number 5, issue 7, the same issue Frank listed as his dishonorable mention, but Chris says he should detract points for the misleading prominence of Hal Jordan on the cover. Chris's favorite issues, issue 6, Golden Age Batman and Halo, issue 32, Justice League of America, annual number 2, The Flashes, annual number 3, Teen Titans, and in the fifth spot, a tie between issue 50 and the special. Chris's favorite secret origin stories were the Justice League origin from issue 32, the Black Canary origin from issue 50, the Legion Clubhouse story from issue 46, the Martian Manhunter story from issue 35, and Barry Allen's origin slash coda from annual number 2. Angie's favorite Secret Origins covers, number one, the Batman Villain Special, number two, issue one, the Golden Age Superman, number three, issue 50, the Finale, number four, issue 41, the Flash Rogues, and number five, issue 27, Zatanna and Zatara. His favorite stories, number one, the Creeper, no joke, he really likes the Creeper, number two, the Doom Patrol, number three, the Justice League of America, number four, Poison Ivy, and number five, Man Bat. Ange really liked the retcon that intertwined Batman and Man-Bat's origins. And Ange's favorite issue of Secret Origins was issue 10, the Phantom Stranger issue, with an honorable mention of that first annual because of the Doom Patrol. Paul Hicks's favorite stories in the series were the origins of Poison Ivy, Floronic Man, The Suicide Squad, Stanley and His Monster, and The Legion Clubhouse. His favorite covers were issue 50, the final issue, issue 43, Hawk and Dove, issue 39, Man-Bat and... Issue 49, Newsboy Legion and Bouncing Boy, and Issue 48, Ambush Bug. Paul also included his top three omissions from Secret Origins, which included the Sea Devils, that's a good pick, Baron Winters, hmm, I think Paul and I will talk about him soon, and Dr. Death, who Paul calls the Skeletor-looking dude who's unexpectedly evil. I wonder if he meant Dr. Destiny. Jimmy McGlinchey clarified his list, saying, I haven't read many of the Secret Origins issues, so my list of favorite stories will just be from those origins I read in other collections. But here goes. Jimmy's top five stories, The Origin of the Justice League of America, The Origin of Blue Beetle, The Origin of the Suicide Squad, The Origin of the Penguin, and The Origin of the Martian Manhunter. His top five covers... Secret Origins Special, Issue 10, The Phantom Stranger Issue, Issue 1, Golden Age Superman, Issue 50, The Finale, and Issue 37, Legion of Subs and Dr. Light. His honorable mention was Balance Cover to Secret Origins Trade Paperback. Jimmy's top five omissions from Secret Origins were Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Jon Stewart, Swamp Thing, and Darkseid. His top five head-scratchers, meaning why did these characters get origins when the five just mentioned did not, Chris KL99, Midnight, Titan's Tower, Ma Hunkle, and The Whip. And Jimmy's top five groups or teams omitted from Secret Origins, The New Gods, The Outsiders, Legion, that's the acronym one, Infinity Incorporated, and The Young All-Stars. Chad Bokelman's Top 5 covers Issue 10, Phantom Stranger, Issue 15, Dead Man and the Spectre, Issue 38, Green Arrow and Speedy, Issue 31, Justice Society of America, and Issue 14, The Suicide Squad. Although Chad says he might swap that one out for the cover to Issue 19, Uncle Sam and the Guardian. 
As for favorite stories, Chad says, I'd have to re-listen to every single episode to get back to you, which I obviously don't have the time to do, but the Phantom Stranger issue has always been one of my very favorite comic book issues, period. Sure, I could go into my back issues and re-flip through the issues to remind myself, but that won't work, and why? Because you and your guests have done such an incredible job of adding depth to these stories, perspectives not my own, and often not your own, Ryan. There have been characters in this series that I had zero interest in, but your stories and secret origins and your guests' commentary and passion led me to seek out the issue. That's quality guest lineup, and that is quality podcasting. Similarly, Gene Hendricks said, You know, I can't really list my favorite stories from the series since, even if I didn't like the story that much, the guests brought it up. So even though I said it on the previous episode, well done, Ryan. You can be proud of this show, especially since I know how much time and effort went into each episode. I am delighted and humbled to have been a small part of this series. Thanks for inviting me. Now, thank you, Gene. And I mentioned in the previous segment that I got a comment from a first-timer named Dial C for comment who left a very different, very interesting set of lists. This is what Dial C said. I want to post my top five secret origins we could have gotten if the series had continued, and possible song choices for a what-if episode. Number one, Aquaman and Wonder Woman. Starting off easy with the origins that were supposed to happen but never quite made it. I think we definitely would have gotten them if the secret origins had gone on. Dial C's song choices, Ocean Man by Ween and I Am a Woman by Helen Reddy. Number two, Mr. Freeze and Firefly. If Secret Origins had continued, I think Mr. Freeze would have gotten an issue, especially if it came out around when the animated series started, which could have adapted the cartoon origin a lot earlier. I think Firefly would have been picked to do a fire and ice theme and then contrast the two. Song choices, Snow by the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Louisiana House Fire Mid-1950s by Dusu. Number three, Supergirl Linda Danvers and Amethyst Princess of Genworld. I'm kind of surprised these two didn't get an origin. With Linda, there definitely was potential, especially with the death of the first Supergirl, as they were doing some interesting things with her. Plus, the multiple names and identities would have been an interesting topic to discuss. Amethyst definitely should have gotten an origin. It's been said that if DC had not messed with a comic, she could have had a resurgence when Sailor Moon became a hit in the 90s. Her first series was a joy to read, and I picked up the showcase of that series, and all I could think of when reading it was she definitely needed to have an issue of Secret Origins. As for why these two, I think an issue with two young heroines with powers would have been a really neat choice. Song choices, Reflection from the Mulan soundtrack, and She's Got the Power by Stan Bush. Number four, Legion Annual. Legion, if I'm not mistaken, was still going on when Secret Origins was ending and was really great. A Secret Origin with the members would have been a blast, especially if Lobo was in it. Song choice, Bad Company by Bad Company. And number five, Toy Man and Prankster. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's their appearances in Alan Moore's final Superman story, or because it's two of Superman's lesser-known foes, it seems like they would have gotten an appearance. It could have been interesting to see their take on Prankster and what they could have done with him. With Toy Man, we may have gotten some early preview of what he would have become during the death of Superman. Song choices, The Merry-Go-Round Broke Down by Cliff Friend and Dave Franklin, and Babes in Toyland by Doris Day. Well, I mean, those are all great choices. They're all interesting characters. I wish we could have gotten some of their origins. Then Dial C asked me if I had any choices for characters who didn't get secret origins that I would have liked and what songs I would have selected for them. For the answer to the first part, I will say keep listening to this episode, because later on I will give you a list of some of the secret origins that I wish we had gotten. As for the song selections for these sort of what-if secret origins... 
I can't. I'm not going to offer the song choices because when I chose the songs that I used in this podcast, it wasn't just because the song fit the character. Sometimes it was a song that fit the specific theme of the story or a line from the story or a line referenced by my guest. There were a whole lot of things that went into the musical choices on this podcast. So I can't tell you what song I would have attributed to the character whose origin we never got in the series. Uh, But thank you for asking the question. Yeah, I I can't give you those song choices, and to you and all of my listeners, I can't give you any more Secret Origin stories, but what I can give you is some secrets behind each episode of the podcast, and that is coming up next, so don't go away. This time I'll be sailing No more bailing boats for me I'll be out here on the sea Just my confidence in me And I'll be awful sometimes Weak unto my knees I'll learn to get by on a little victory This time I'll have no fear I'll be standing strong and tall I'll turn my back towards them all I'll be awful sometimes Weak unto my knees But I'll learn to get by I'll learn to get by On a little victory Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion Secret Origins, l'émission dédiée à la série de bandes dessinées Secret Origins, publiée par DC dans les années 80. Secret Origins était une anthologie publiée par DC Comics dont chaque numéro racontait l'origine d'au moins un héros ou vilain du monde de DC. La série voit la publication de 50 numéros entre janvier 1986 et juin 1990 et inclut aussi trois numéros annuels et un numéro spécial. En tout et partout, dans les 54 BD portant la bannière Secret Origins, Quelques 120 histoires ont été racontées dans la série. Episode 1, The Golden Age Superman, was recorded over like five different sessions. Two of them were just me recording a few bits like my explanation of what this podcast was bound to be, me describing Roy Thomas's goal for the series, correcting my own mistake in the publication timeline... But the conversation with Chris Franklin for episode one, that was recorded over three different nights. We did our first session, and that was about two hours long, but we had some connection problems at a few points during the talk when the audio would either drop out or get fuzzy. I did clean it up as much as I could, but there were still a few sections that I was never happy with how they sounded. And I talked to Shag about it, and he insisted that the most important episode of the show was the first episode, and it had to be as perfect as possible. 
So I arranged to re-record a few parts with Chris, just, you know, a few minutes for different parts. Uh, but that included him plugging the Supermates and Power Records podcast, because when we originally did that, it was completely garbled. Couldn't hear what he was saying. And, I mean, he was my first guest on the show. I had to give him the chance to, you know, plug what shows he was coming from and make that as clear as possible. And then the last part, I don't remember what segment it was, but I know that we recorded a short bit for the Superman episode when we recorded the Golden Age Batman session for episode 6. So, yeah, that first episode of Secret Origins was a bit of a Frankenstein's monster. Or Franklin-Stein's monster, huh? Eh? Uh, just in terms of how I assembled it from numerous different recordings. And then the one other thing about episode one that I wanted to comment on was a decision I made early on, and I'm not sure it was the right decision, but it is what it is. I used the promo for Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner's Crisis on Infinite Earths podcast within Tales of the Justice Society of America. I used that promo because it felt epic, and Crisis felt connected to Secret Origins. I did not use a promo for Chris's podcast. Instead, I used the Supermates promo on episode two. This led to a sort of recurring thing for my first 27 episodes of the podcast where I never used a promo for the guest on that episode. It started with episode one, and I gave the guests the opportunity to plug their podcasts on projects or whatever they had, but if they had a promo or a teaser for their show, I used it on another episode. If I was doing the show again from the beginning, I'm sure I wouldn't have made that decision, but yeah, that's what it is. Episode 2, Blue Beetle, marks the first time in the life of the series where I recruited a first-time podcaster. This included walking through the Skype setup process with Tim Wallace and reassuring him that I'd make sure he sounded good, which was no problem at all. And this is because even when I recruited guests who didn't have their own podcasts, and really, I had no idea what they sounded like, their speaking style could have been disastrous, but I never worried about it, because I knew these people were fans, and they could speak about these characters with some degree of authority, and all I had to do was just reassure them that nobody would sound like a fool, and then set them up to talk, and their natural fandom and enthusiasm for these stories just took over, and it always worked. There are two secrets about episode two. The first one is, if you download this episode now, you will not hear the same version of the episode that I released on June 8th, 2015. I have actually modified this episode, like a special edition. All I did, though, was add another musical cue. As much as possible, I tried to give every character who has an origin story his or her own song. At the end of episode two, I used a bad religion cover of Bob Dylan's It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. But about a year later, I realized that issue two really tells the origin of two different Blue Beatles, Dan Garrett and Ted Kord. So I decided to add a second song, and I dropped in a different cover version, Van Morrison's version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, right after the promo break. That way, both Blue Beatles have a theme song. And on the subject of the music, this leads me to another secret. Maybe the secret I am most proud of. Episode 2, and specifically the Bad Religion song, marks the first time I edited a song to fit the episode. You guys may not realize it, I don't know if anyone else ever caught it, but throughout the life of this podcast, I actually doctored a ton of the songs, trimming verses, lengthening segments, different cuts and splices, to play just the part of the song that I wanted so it would start when I wanted and hit the high points when I wanted. It's one of the things I've secretly been most proud of about this podcast. One of the things, but not the biggest thing. 
Episode 3, Captain Marvel, was recorded after the rest of the first six issues had been covered, and the reason for that is I couldn't get a host for this one. My first choice to guest host on this episode was J. David Weeder, and he was one of the first people I actually reached out to. But, for weird reasons, we just never connected. It took a year, basically, before Dave and I talked. But I still held out for a while, hoping he'd get back to me. He didn't, and at the time, I just didn't know who else was a big Captain Marvel fan. I hadn't yet talked to Kyle Benning yet. The Shazam cast wasn't a thing yet. But I reached out to another podcaster who expressed interest in the show, and he said he'd be happy to talk about Captain Marvel. We scheduled a time to record, and then he had to postpone because of a medical issue. We pushed it back a week, and then he postponed again. And the more I talked to him, the more I felt like this just wasn't going to happen. It just felt like he was flaking out on me, and the medical thing was an excuse. So I needed somebody else. But at this point, I'm behind schedule. I mean, episodes 4, 5, and 6 are recorded and edited, except for listener feedback, but episode 3 has got to come out. So, I reached out to my friends Nathaniel Wayne and Paul Scavito, because I knew I could get them, I could lock them down, and I knew that neither of them were experts on the character, but I figured with two of them at least, there would be enough different opinions to make the conversation really interesting. And boy, this episode pissed people off. I mean, so much criticism about our coverage came in the listener feedback that at first I thought I'd royally screwed up. But the more feedback came in, the more I realized that listeners cared about the show, that it mattered to them, which was tremendously encouraging in a way that I never expected. So, I wouldn't change that episode. Well, okay, I would change the recording. There are so many ambient sounds and noise in this episode that I cringe when I re-listen to it. One secret about this episode, I believe it has the only uses of the word Shazam without the thunder sound effect. The first time is during the prologue when I explain the choppy sound in editing, and I also forgot to use the sound effect when I mentioned the miniseries Shazam! A New Beginning. Episode 4, Firestorm, was recorded twice. Yes, the whole thing was recorded twice, and it wasn't because of technical issues or sound quality. Shag and I just felt like the first conversation wasn't that good. This episode is less orderly than most of the podcast, and I tried to cover some weird gaps in the discussion by dropping in promos for other podcasts without a built-in segue. Shag hadn't heard the previous episodes when we recorded, and I don't think he really trusted me yet, so he took over the conversation entirely. Well, on second thought, that's how he handled every appearance on this podcast. During this episode, I had some of the feedback for episode 3, and this is when I got Kyle Benning's message and learned how big a Captain Marvel fan he was. Also, after this episode came out, I got a message from Rob Kelly asking about my use of the Bob Dylan song, Things Have Changed, why I used the song, why I used the Dylan cover on episode 2. We discussed briefly our Dylan fandom, and this was sort of my first glimpse of what would eventually become Pod Dylan. Episode 5, The Crimson Avenger, was my first time recording with Siskoid, and I had a blast. We didn't know each other yet, but I loved talking to him. The only thing that I hate about how many podcasts he started producing for the Fire and Water Network is that we don't have time to work with each other anymore. Feedback for the Captain Marvel episode continued to come in, and I read letters from Jeff Nettleton and Diablo Frank on episode 5. And Frank said Roy Thomas had his head up his ass in a much more verbose way than I would later say it. Episode 6, Golden Age Batman and Halo, was a watershed episode for the podcast, testing out the new multi-story format and the length an episode could go without driving away listeners. This episode sets up one of the few musical regrets I have on this podcast, not for the songs that I used, but for one I didn't. 
I was talking about the popularity of Batman and how some fans rejected that fandom. I made some kind of analogy about liking the Rolling Stones with musical hipsters asking, have you ever even heard of the Afghan wigs? I remember Rob Kelly really liking that joke, and the thing is, I like the Afghan wigs. More specifically, I like Greg Dooley, the lead singer, and his new band, The Twilight Singers. But anyway, I wanted to use one of their songs at some point in this podcast to go back to that joke, but it just never happened. I couldn't find a story or character that fit thematically. Oh well. I recorded the listener feedback section on this episode on the Sunday before the episode came out. If you listen to it again, you'll note that I have almost no voice. I recorded the Phantom Stranger episode with Rob Kelly on the previous Saturday. I was sick and had lost my voice by that night. I was scheduled to record the Nightwing origin with Tom Paneris that same Sunday, but with no voice, I postponed that recording a couple of days. Still had to do the feedback section, though. Episode 7, Guy Gardner and Sandman. Much like with Firestorm, Siskoid and I recorded our conversation about Sandman twice. My head just wasn't in the game the first time we recorded, and I love Sandman. I just assumed that I could coast on my enthusiasm for the character, which means I didn't work as hard, I didn't prep as hard for that segment, and that didn't work because I forgot to bring up a whole lot of important facts and details. So, after I re-listened, I asked Siskoid, can we record this one again? And he was great about it, as you would expect. As for the segment with Sean and Chad, I wish I'd had the chance to record that talk a second time, too. Not because I am unhappy with it, I just would have liked another chance to talk to Sean. Episode 8, Shadow Lass and Dollman. So one day, I get a message from Kyle Benning asking if we're still on schedule to record that night. And I panic, because I had completely forgotten about it. We arranged to record the Shadow last segment, but I didn't put it in my calendar, and it just completely slipped my mind, so I wasn't prepared. So Kyle and I rescheduled, he was great, very understanding, and in the months that followed, he appeared on numerous episodes of Dead Buff and Spies, and we worked on G.I. Joe, a real American headcast together. After the Sandman episode, Al Gerding, a.k.a. Van Z, emailed Roy Thomas to ask about the Phantom of the Fair in that story. Al shared Roy's response with me, and I used that exclusive information to verbally bitch-slap Roy Thomas. In hindsight, I felt bad about exploiting Al's fandom that way, but I would make it up to him in the future. Episode 9, The Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy and the Golden Age Flash. This episode begins with an audio clip of Shag saying he heard me tell Roy Thomas to pull his head out of his ass, and Shag saying that I had balls of steel. I don't consider this an appearance by Shag, but if you did, you could say that his voice appeared on ten different episodes of Secret Origins Podcast. The Star Spangled Kid segment marked the first time I recorded with Greg Arujo, his first podcast session. However, we recorded an episode of Dead Bath and Spies about a week later, and that episode actually came out before this episode of Secret Origins. Episode 10, The Phantom Stranger. As I already said, I was sick when Rob and I recorded this one. I really, really depended on Rob's knowledge and history of The Stranger, so I didn't go into this episode as prepared as I should have been, and... I've always felt like this was my worst performance on the show. I even edited some of myself out of this episode where I felt like I was just rambling. Ideally, I would have gotten a second take on this one, but it just didn't happen. This episode also features another one of my musical regrets. As Rob pointed out after the episode, I should have used the Bob Dylan song, The Man in the Long Black Coat. I love the song, and it should have been on the episode. I just forgot about it beforehand. 
During the talk with Rob, though, this is where I mentioned the infamous t-shirt with 10 different DC heroes that nobody believed was real because I couldn't find evidence of it. Well, that would be fixed in the future. Episode 11, Power Girl and Golden Age Hawkman marked another podcast debut with the first appearance of Ange, and as you'd expect, he knocked it out of the park. I remember the first time I heard him on the Fire and Water podcast talking to Rob, I felt equal measures of fatherly pride and jealousy. Anyway, this episode was about three hours long, basically because Luke, Jack, and Eddie and I could talk about Hawkman for a long-ass time. During the listener feedback segment, lots of people talked about the Phantom Stranger stories and saga of the Swamp Thing, and three times I asked my listeners to start a Swamp Thing podcast. Nobody did it, so I am forced to start my own. You can hear me talk about Swamp Thing's adventures on Midnight the Podcasting Hour, coming soon. I ended episode 11 with a message talking about my history as a podcaster up to that point, the other shows that I had started, the lessons I had learned, and how much work went into this one. And I said back then that this podcast would be 55 episodes. And that is true. If you count this one and the annuals and the special, 55 entries in the Secret Origins podcast. Episode 12, Golden Age Fury and the Challengers of the Unknown. This episode featured my first recording session with Doug Zavisha. I'll let you in on a secret. One of the reasons I kept bringing Doug back to the show was because when I was editing these episodes, I could close my eyes and imagine I was talking to actor Tom Berenger. Episode 13, Nightwing, The Whip, and Johnny Thunder was the first episode that wasn't completed before midnight the day it was published. The production and the amount of sound effects and the editing went overtime, and simply exporting the MP3 file took forever. I already mentioned how I had to postpone my recording with Tom Panarese a day or two because I had no voice on the day that we were originally scheduled to talk. This was one of my favorite segments of the entire series, just because I love talking about those Batman and Robin comics, which only reinforces my excitement for the show Chris Franklin and I are starting, Batman Nightcast. The whip sound effect came naturally because, as ridiculous as this sounds, that effect was built into the vision Paul had for the character. We were at a hostel in Boston, don't ask why, and brought up the character and started brainstorming ways to make him relevant, and Paul came up with this concept of this hot Latin sex magnet that all of the other heroes hate because he could steal their girlfriends effortlessly. And every time he appears, the whole world stops so he can pose like a model with this devilish smile and a trumpet call. During the editing, I decided that I couldn't do the trumpet call and whip sound effect every time. It could only be used for special emphasis. But I dropped the plain whip crack whenever we said the name, the whip. The Johnny Thunder segment was originally going to be done in the style of a Friars Club roast, with Diablo Frank coming in at the end in place of Johnny to retaliate against all of the other guests who ripped on the character. Alas, there wasn't enough time to organize it, and it would have required a ton of energy on everyone's parts to do a monologue or a set of jokes, and the production on this episode was already crazy. But I got a bunch of people while I was recording other sessions to say something disparaging about Johnny Thunder, and then I used that to set up Nathaniel Wayne's return to the podcast, which came off like a redemption arc after so many people hated his thoughts on Captain Marvel. This episode includes two voices that only appear on the joke segment and never again return to the series. One is my wife, Angela, and the other is Illegal Machine from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. I got Frank and Illegal Machine's part when we were recording the Ant-Man movie review episode of the Marvel Superheroes podcast. The joke segment was also Gene Hendricks' first appearance on the show. He wouldn't do a real segment until episode 15. 
The last note about this episode is that during the feedback section, I mentioned David Sopko and his new Blue Devil podcast. Knowing that he passed away before we got a chance to record, it's kind of hard to hear myself talk about him. Episode 14, The Suicide Squad, was the first show that I scheduled to record with Aaron Moss, but actually the second show we did together. After we arranged to talk about The Suicide Squad, he invited me on to Head Speaks to talk about Star Wars. The stinger at the end of this episode was me asking Aaron about Johnny Thunder. I was going to include that in the montage of episode 13, but I think I just forgot that we had recorded that until I was editing episode 14. And then I realized I still wanted to use it somehow, so I dumped it in at the end. Episode 15, Dead Man and the Spectre. I had originally planned to record the Dead Man segment and the Doom Patrol segment from the first annual in the same session with Doug. But when the recording date was approaching, I was running behind and I just wasn't prepared to talk about the Doom Patrol yet. So we just did the Dead Man segment and had such a fun time talking about the character that we're going to do it some more on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. As for the Spectre segment, there's a point in our conversation when Gene Hendricks referenced the movie All Dogs Go to Heaven, and I drop in a sound clip from the movie there. Well, I did that to cover up a mistake of mine, that I got the movie confused with Oliver and Company and I kept quoting Billy Joel. Episode 16, Warlord, Amazing Man, and Our Man. Professor Allen and I made a joke at the end of the episode about determining right then and there that he would come back for the next episode. Obviously, that was already planned, because we actually recorded the Warlord and Adam Strange segments back-to-back in the same session. For the 15-minute Amazing Man segment that I recorded with Rob, I'm quite sure we recorded something else that day, but I can't think of what it was. I'm guessing it was the Film and Water episode where we talked about the Kurosawa film Hidden Fortress. I could be wrong about that, though. As for the Hour Man segment, as I said on the episode, that was originally scheduled to be another Gene Hendricks appearance. We booked it, and in fact, he wrote out the synopsis for the story. But then his or his wife's schedule changed, something happened, we ran into a time crunch, and I needed to find a replacement. Well, as luck would have it, just a few days earlier, I had booked Al Gerning, a.k.a. Van Z, to do the Miss America story on a future episode. The timing worked out, and I asked Al if he could step in early to do the Hour Man segment, with little time to prepare. But Al knew the character really, really well, so it actually worked out great. And Al was the first guest to appear on the show who came from the ranks of the listeners. Giving him a slot on the show was sort of a reward for his continued support of the show, and for finding the infamous t-shirt that I mentioned during the Phantom Stranger episode. Episode 17, Adam Strange and Dr. Occult. There's a point during my conversation with Professor Allen when I said I'd have a Space Cabbie podcast for 2018. As of now, there are no updates on that topic. Before I recorded the Dr. Occult segment with Michael Bradley, Professor Allen described him as the nicest man in podcasting. And in my experience, he certainly was. I had a blast talking with Michael, and I always wanted to get him back on the show. I kept hoping that a slot would open up or something that would feel appropriate for his return, but nothing ever felt right. There was always a new guest or a new recruit or a previous guest that was a bit more appropriate or urgent. Anyway, I hope to work with Michael on something else in the future. This episode was the first time that I talked about Howard Simpson's work, and I was pleasantly surprised when he responded on Facebook after the episode came out, and months later we would actually end up recording together. One other thing about this episode, and it's one of those things that's hard to listen to in retrospect, during the plugs for Michael's projects, he mentioned that the Parallel Lines podcast that he did with Sean Engel was wrapping up. I commented that two of Sean's podcasts were ending at the same time, and I asked what he would be doing with all of his free time. Just an offhanded joke, but it's 
yeah. Annual number one, Doom Patrol and Captain Comet is one of those examples of, if I knew then what I know now, I might have done it differently. I love the Waiting for Doom podcast. Paul and Mike are terrific, and ideally, I would have gotten the two of them and Doug Zavisha on the Doom Patrol segment. Unfortunately, I had only just started listening to their podcast at the time that I recorded with Doug. I'd seen the Twitter account Waiting for Doom, but... I thought it was about Dr. Doom or the Doom video game at first. I know, I'm stupid. I also thought they were British the first time I heard them. Yes, yes, really, really stupid. I mean, obviously I know they're from South Africa. As for the Captain Comet section, I noted it in the episode and you can hear me talk about we had to reschedule that part with Kyle because the first time we record we could not get a clear signal. Kyle had just moved and his internet service provider hadn't hooked him up yet. The second time we recorded was better, but not that good. There was still a ton of garbled audio, and I mentioned that beforehand in a little bit of a disclaimer. And the response that I got was very heartwarming. People said I made a big deal about it, but the episode sounded fine, but they didn't realize. I excised whole swaths of our talk. I think the final segment with Kyle was about 30 minutes long. I probably cut 9 to 10 minutes of stuff that was completely incomprehensible. That episode also included the controversial use of My Chemical Romance's version of Under Pressure for the Doom Patrol segment. And boy, a lot of listeners hated that musical selection. But I stood by it, and, well, time vindicated one of us. Episode 18, Creeper and Golden Age Green Lantern, marks my second time recording with Ange, and I want him to know, one year later, I still don't like the Creeper. This episode also marked my very first time recording with Michael Bailey, and as with some other guests, we recorded two segments back-to-back. We did Green Lantern and Guardian the same night, and this was one of the, oh, occasional instances when the musical selection was informed by something that came up during our conversation. I don't remember what song I originally had planned for Alan Scott's theme, but when Michael mentioned You Got the Touch, I knew I had to drop it in, just for a couple of seconds. And then I thought about it, and I decided that I had to use it for his theme song because it is so freaking perfect for a Green Lantern theme. Episode 19, Uncle Sam and the Guardian, was Jeff Nettleton's first podcast appearance. And, I mean, I keep saying this, but he did a fantastic job. Similar to how it went with Van Z, Jeff and I had arranged to record an episode later in the series, The Manhunters Issue, when the Uncle Sam story opened up. I think it was originally going to be Diablo Frank on this segment, because he asked to cover all of the quality comics characters just sort of in a blanket statement. I think he assumed that there would be a Ray story or a Phantom Lady story. He said that he had no interest in talking about Uncle Sam, so I looked around for a substitute, and I remembered Jeff's Navy background might make for an interesting take on this patriotic character. Because it was a late substitution, Jeff didn't have a lot of time to prep, but that's one of my favorite things about this podcast. The listeners and the guests were tremendously passionate and professional. Even a first-time podcaster stepping in at the last minute like Jeff and like Al Gerding, they came in and they nailed it because they are fans. They know these characters. They know this history. And that made my job all the easier, and it made the show look and sound better. Michael Bailey came in to talk about the Guardian and the Newsboys. The plan all along was that he would come back to talk about these characters again on episode 49. But of course that changed because someone else requested that story in 49. Someone I couldn't refuse. Episode 20, Batgirl and Dr. Midnight. (sighs) Recording with Stella and Shag at the same time was every bit as terrible as you'd expect. 
The plan originally was to record the two segments separately, Stella on Batgirl and Shag on Midnight. The two of them conspired together behind my back to team up on the Batgirl segment, and then we invited Stella to stick around and we recorded the whole thing in one go. Anyway, this episode is fun to revisit, if only to hear Shag and I trying to out-funny and out-geek each other in front of a girl. Episode 21, Jonah Hex and Black Condor. I wrote to Scott Gardner asking him to be my guest on the Jonah Hex segment because he had his own Jonah Hex podcast for a while. Well, Scott never replied, so I went fishing around for other hosts. Tim Wallace asked for Hex really early on, and I did want him to come back on the show after his first appearance way back on episode 2. But I also really wanted to work with Mike Gillis after I heard Radio vs. the Martians, so I arranged to do the Hex segment with both of them, and we had so much fun. This story really surprised me, but I grew to love Jonah Hex so much in my research for this story. And since this episode, Mike and I have recorded together a couple of times. We're going to record again in the near future. And we might have a project in development for next year, but I can't say any more than that. On the Black Condor segment, Frank and I recorded that the same day we recorded the Floronic Man segment for episode 23. That was not an enjoyable night for Frank. I really owed him after that double feature. Uh, Two sad events coincided with this episode. Murphy Anderson died a few days after the episode came out. I was worried that Frank and I might have sounded disrespectful to him because of our talk about Anderson swiping Lou Fine's work. I think I cut one line that sounded a little harsh, but ultimately we weren't seeming unfair, so I left most of it in. The other thing is that toward the end of the episode, I announced the hospitalization of Sean Engel. At the time, I was still counting on Sean to appear on the Nort segment of a future episode, so I was assuming that he would make a full recovery. Episode 22, The Manhunters. Jeff Nettleton mentioned in the feedback to an earlier episode that this was his favorite issue, and since I didn't know much about the Manhunters or really care that much about them beforehand, I wanted someone with his level of enthusiasm. So I emailed Jeff and asked if he would be my guest. At the time, he said he was very interested, but he was changing jobs soon and his schedule might change. We kind of went back and forth over a couple of weeks trying to work out the logistics of simply seeing if he could do it. Finally, Jeff sent me a message that he didn't think he could do it. It wasn't going to work out schedule-wise. I was disappointed, but I also suspected that Jeff's answer was a bit of a knee-jerk. Not that he was nervous about appearing on the show, even though that would be completely understandable. It can be intimidating as hell putting your name and your voice on a broadcast that you can't control. Frankly, I'm amazed that any of these crazy guests agreed to be on my show. Anyway, I didn't know if Jeff was nervous or not, but I suspected he would come around after initially saying that he couldn't do it. So I emailed him back and I said I wasn't in a rush to record the episode. I wasn't going to ask anyone else to do the issue for at least a week, just in case he changed his mind. And my gamble paid off because Jeff emailed me back the very next day saying he would do it. And then, like I said, I ended up putting him on the Uncle Sam episode a couple weeks earlier. And Jeff was great. He knows this stuff so well. He should host his own podcast, or at least be a regular guest. Episode 23, Guardians of the Universe and Floronic Man. Well, this was a rough episode to get through. This was my first time talking to both Chad and Mark from the Lantern cast. We've worked together a couple of times since then. I love those guys. But this was a boring story, and the conversation went long and kind of wandered. Then there was the Floronic Man chat. Same thing. I love Frank, but neither of us cared very much about this story or the character. And looming over this whole episode as I prepared to release it was the very recent death of David Sopko. Which brings us to episode 24, Blue Devil and Dr. Fate. 
I already talked about what happened to David and its effect on the episode with how I edited my talk with Justin Barlow and the decision not to do the normal music or promos or listener feedback. The one thing I didn't mention was that originally this episode was going to be all Shag, or rather, Shag wanted to do both segments, Blue Devil and Dr. Fate, because he's such a big fan of both characters. But I wanted a different approach. I wanted to expand to more guests. So I reached out to David and Justin, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad Justin and I got to talk, and Shag got the opportunity to talk about Blue Devil at the beginning of the Dr. Fate segment, which we recorded just a day or two before the episode came out. It was much later than I usually schedule the recordings, because I like to have a lot more time to edit. And that's why I needed to take a hiatus after episode 25. I kept smashing into these deadlines. I was running behind and burning out, and it was threatening to hurt the quality of the shows. So I decided after episode 25, which was almost the halfway point, I'd take a couple months off to recharge. Which brings us to episode 25, Legion of Superheroes and the Golden Age Adam, which was supposed to be the podcast debut of Little Russell Burbage of Lupra, the man behind the Legion of Superbloggers. Of course he was going to be my guest on the Legion of Superheroes origin, but he had to cancel at the last minute and I needed to scramble for a replacement with very little time. However, as we have already seen happen several times so far, I had just banked an upcoming guest, in this case Martin Gray. We arranged to do the Legion Clubhouse story in the future, and knowing how much he loved the Legion, I asked if he could do issue 25 with me. We recorded one morning, morning for me anyway, Martin was sick, he had a sore throat, at least I think that's why he was drinking tea, I don't think tea is a big drink over in the UK, but he did a great job, of course he did, who would have doubted him? Then a momentous thing happened while I was working on this episode, and I remember because I was working on the listener feedback section, which was double-sized because it covered two episodes. I remember when I was reading the feedback and writing my responses and thinking about it, and at the same time, the same day, Rob, Shag, Chris, and I started formulating what would become the Fire and Water Network. Shag had already told me about it beforehand. It was either when we recorded Dr. Fate, or it might have been an earlier podcast appearance. I don't remember exactly when it was, but anyway, yeah. We had our first sort of network meeting brainstorm session three days before episode 25 came out. Episode 26, Black Lightning and Miss America, came out on February 8th, 2016, after a 10-week hiatus. I wanted to release it a week earlier, on February 1st, but something pushed it back. I don't know if I wasn't able to record with Luke Giaconetti on time, or if the launch of the Fire and Water Network delayed it a couple of days. It might have been both, honestly. I had a great time talking with Luke on the two previous episodes, but initiating this recording session ended up being mentally and emotionally harder than expected because this was the first episode to come out after Sean Engel passed away in December. On the other hand, as I mentioned in the episode, I was glad that my first guest after we came back was a friend of Sean's who could share some fond memories. Beyond that, I felt like Luke and I had a great talk about Black Lightning. I hope someday we can record something else together again. Maybe we'll find a horror story to talk about on my next show. This episode also included the Miss America story, and as I said, that was supposed to be Al's first appearance on the show. I'm pretty sure his brain is programmed to receive notification alerts anytime someone mentions Miss America. So there you go, buddy. There's three more. Episode 27, Zatara and Zatanna. I remember having a hard time thinking of who to ask to be on this episode, because there were multiple stories, but the nature of the narrative tied them together, so I figured it would have to be one guest for the whole issue, and I just didn't know who else liked Zatanna or the magical characters that much. 
I don't remember if something specifically inspired me to think of Professor Allen and Emily Middleton, but as soon as the idea came to me, it felt like the most obvious and natural thing in the world. It was great recording with them, had a blast, even though the issue wasn't what I wanted it to be, which is something I said fairly regularly about this show. Even when the stories weren't very good, I loved talking to them for this show because my guests were amazing. Episode 28, Nightshade and Midnight. Aaron Moss and I recorded the Nightshade segment sometime after January 19th, and I know that date because we did a back-to-back session for each of our podcasts. We recorded the Nightshade talk for Secret Origins, and then we reviewed the first official trailer for the Suicide Squad movie for an episode of his Task Force X podcast. The Midnight recording session, that is, the session with Siskoid about Midnight, which wasn't recorded at Midnight. Actually, the session with Aaron probably was recorded at Midnight, or even after Midnight because of the time zone difference. Anyway, the session with Siskoid felt a little strange. It was our first session since episode 9, and we had talked so frequently in the early days of the podcast. But then we had this long gap, and in the meantime, Siskoid started his own podcast, the Lonely Hearts Romance Podcast, and then after that, he became one of the founders of the Fire and Water Network. So even though he was still the same terrific guest, I couldn't help but feel like there was this change in our dynamic, like we were we were reuniting after some kind of graduation ceremony. I, it was weird. Annual 2, The Flash, and The Flash was crazy because both segments dealt with sort of last-minute fill-in guests. Originally, Chris Ivey from Mythmaking ETC was supposed to be my guest for the Wally West segment. We booked that segment months in advance, but then, as these things go, his schedule changed and he had to take a break from podcasting, so he asked if I could find a substitute. I knew that Wally West was a popular and beloved character, so if I cast a wide net asking for guests, I'd probably get more bites than I could manage. So I asked the guys in the Fire and Water Network. Both Shag and Chris volunteered, but I ended up going with Siskoid's recommendation of Bass from The Lonely Hearts. This was before Siskoid and Bass launched their first Strike podcast, and I was excited to welcome any of Siskoid's co-hosts onto the show to further strengthen the connectivity of the Fire and Water Network. And then there was the Barry Allen segment. I had a guest picked, he said he would do it, but he flaked out on me and stopped answering my messages when I asked if we could schedule a time to record. So I looked around and saw that Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections had covered a lot of Silver Age comics with The Flash, so I reached out and he was happy to do it. And it went far better than it would have with the other guests that I had planned, so I am really happy with the way the episode turned out. I was also happy to bring Paul Scavito back to read the Rudyard Kipling poem after the Wally segment. That was a last-minute addition, but it felt right to include something like that after it got brought up during my talk with Bass. Episode 29, The Atom, Golden Age Red Tornado, and Mr. America. This was another session where Frank and I recorded something for my show and something for his show. I don't remember exactly what it was we talked about, but it might have been the X-Men Apocalypse trailer review for the Marvel Superheroes podcast. When I asked John Wilson to be my guest on this episode, he admitted that he had never listened to the show before. I recommended he check out episodes 16 or 17 to get a sense of the format and the tone of the show. Then we recorded the two segments back-to-back, and everything was fine. At the time that we recorded, John had not listened to Secret Origins Episode 1. I know that because I know exactly when he listened to Episode 1, because he posted on Facebook that he had to turn the show off when he got to the part where I compared Pa Kent in the movie Man of Steel to a homophobic father of a gay son. John did not like that comparison. John also has very strong feelings about Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman, and we will probably never collaborate on another podcast, which is unfortunate because I really enjoyed our talk about Red Tornado and Mr. America. 
Episode 30, Elongated Man and Plastic Man featured another podcast debut, this time Bradley Austin Null. Originally, I had Diablo Frank in mind for Ralph Dibney because of the Justice League Detroit connection, but Frank said he didn't like Ralph, and Frank had already talked about enough characters he didn't like that I didn't want to subject him to any more tragedy. So then I reached out to a guy I didn't know who had a blog dedicated to the Elongated Man, but I don't think he speaks English as his first language, and he never responded to me. Oh well. I thought of bringing Paul Scavito back for Ralph Dibney. Paul loved the character after discovering him in 52, but someone, and I'm sure it was probably Shag, recommended Bradley Null, and he was a great guest to talk to. It was a noisy session. If you listen to it, there was a ton of ambient noise, and I even cut out as much as I could, but there were still a lot of extra unwanted sound effects. As for Plastic Man, it was a total pleasure to get Max Romero on the show. He was one of the first people I reached out to and asked to be part of the show when I was first planning it, like a full year before we actually scheduled to record. And he is another guest that I wish I could have brought back for another episode. And all I can say is I hope to record with him again in the future. And I hope I get the chance to meet him in person, because we almost met last summer. But before moving on, I have to reveal another secret. Much like episode 2, if you go back and listen to episode 30 now, you will hear a slightly different version of the episode than the one that came out last March. What changed? Well, again, it relates to the music. The song I originally used for the Plastic Man segment was I Fought the Law by the Bobby Fuller 4. That was fine, until I used that same song on the Clayface episode, and none of you caught it. I had to catch my own mistake and correct it. And it was easier to drop the song from the Plastic Man segment, so I replaced it with the song Plastic Man by the Kinks. Again, it's like Secret Origins Episode 30, Special Edition. Episode 31, Justice Society of America, marked a first for me in that it was the first time I recorded with three guests in the same session. I had tried that earlier for an episode of Dead Moth and Spies, but it didn't work out. So the JSA episode was the biggest recording session I had done, and it wasn't without complications. There were some Skype connection issues, I think Kyle got dropped from the call two or three times, but we ended up making it work, and when the whole thing cut together, I'm very proud of that episode. And episode 32, Justice League of America, I knew from the start was going to be even bigger. I had to get Rob back to talk about Aquaman's part in the JLA origin and Frank for Martian Manhunter's part, and that meant structurally getting someone for each one of the five founding members of the Justice League, with me as the Black Canary representative. I brought Chad back for Green Lantern, and I reached out to Keith G. Baker for the Flash part after hearing him on the Fire and Water podcast where he told Shag how much better he preferred pre-Crisis DC. But recording with three guests was difficult enough. There was no way I was going to try and get four guys, in addition to me, from three different time zones on the same call and have it work out efficiently. So I opted to approach this episode differently than any episode before. I would record each guy separately, talking about their assigned character's role in the JLA origin, and then fill out the front and back ends of the conversation with my usual interview questions and splice it all together. But when I decided on that approach, I also realized that I couldn't do the Black Canary section by myself. That violated the spirit of the podcast, which was that I had guests on for every segment. So I brought Chris Franklin in at the last minute, and that is how I ended up with five different guests, all recorded separately, and the Herculean task of assembling everyone's responses into some sort of coherent group interview. I think I succeeded, but it took a lot of time and effort, which is why there was a bye week between the release of episodes 31 and 32. 
Episodes 33, Mr. Miracle, Green Flame, and Ice Maiden, 34, Captain Adam, Rocket Red, and Nort, and 35, Booster Gold, Martian Manhunter, and Max Lord. Loosely considered the Justice League International trilogy were some of the most strenuous recording sessions since the podcast began. These issues really cemented the three stories per issue format that became the norm for the series for a while after these issues. Recording these episodes coincided with Shag preparing for the launch of his Justice League International podcast, which made him too busy to contribute to the episodes. But I asked him for guest recommendations, you know, who he thought would be a good fit for any given segment, and then I promptly ignored him and did my own thing. For the nine stories in these three episodes, I brought in ten different guests, and only three of them, Frank, Tim Wallace, and Doug Zavisha, had been on the show before. Four of the others... David A. Gutierrez, Paul Hicks, Dr. G, and Andy Capellish would return on later episodes. FKA Jason, Paul Spataro, and Andy Leyland made their only appearances on episode 34. And that was another emotionally difficult episode because of the Nort story. Sean Engel was supposed to come back to cover that story. We had talked about it, he was excited about it, and after he died, I left his name on the schedule for a long time, even after numerous other guests asked if they could be on the Nort segment. I felt paralyzed for a while because it would have been unfair to ask, for example, it would have been unfair to ask Mike Gillis to replace Sean for that story. I mean, I could have done it and just not told him that's what was going on, but I also couldn't do that segment and not address Sean. There was no good answer, but I came up with the idea to ask Sean's friends, Andy and Paul, to sit in as a tribute to Sean, and they were gracious and wonderful, and we recorded it like the crack of dawn because the only time we could actually record that segment was before one of their other early morning recording sessions with Gene Hendricks or somebody. Episode 36, Green Lantern, Tom Kalmaku, and Poison Ivy. After the whirlwind of recording the previous episodes, I needed to take a week off to get the episode recorded with the Lantern cast guys and the Franklins. But then Cindy Franklin got sick, I think, which delayed the recording of the Poison Ivy segment, so episode 36 came out after a two-week gap. Episode 37, Legion of Substitute Heroes and Dr. Light. Aaron and I recorded the Dr. Light segment the same day we recorded a Task Force X episode covering three issues of Suicide Squad, The Nightshade Odyssey. So yeah, we basically reviewed four comics that night, and we didn't start recording until after midnight. That was a long one. Episode 38, Green Arrow and Speedy, was another example of setting up a recording far in advance. I knew I was going to record the Green Arrow story with the Sutherlands for almost a year before we talked, which made it all the more ironic that the one night we chose to record, there was this bad storm on the East Coast that played havoc with our Skype connection. While Darren and Ruth proved every bit as sweet and generous as they sound, and they even volunteered to re-record that episode if the audio couldn't be salvaged, but I proved to be the salvager supreme and made this episode work. As for the speedy segment, in a way that was an even longer time coming. It was my first time recording with Dave Weeder, who was one of the first five people I tried to recruit onto the podcast, but for, you know, reasons, it took us a year to get in touch. Episode 39, Man Bat and I knew that Professor Allen liked the Man Bat, so he was always going to be my guest on that segment, even though Chris Franklin really, really wanted it. But Chris had already been on Superman, Batman, the Justice League, and Poison Ivy, and he was going to help me cover the Teen Titans on a future episode. As for... Shag and I joked about the name, even doing our own little impressions of the DC Nation short version of the theme while we were recording, and it ended up being another glorious opportunity for a sound effect gag in the style of Shazam and the Whip. 
Episode 40, Gorilla City, Congorilla, and Detective Chimp. My guest for the Detective Chimp story was supposed to be Paul Rue, a frequent guest on Radio vs. the Martians, but Paul's computer crashed about a week before our planned recording time. It threw his schedule off and he had to pull out, so I asked Paul Scavito to return, knowing that he'd have a lot of fun with the character. Annual 3, Teen Titans, was the second episode I recorded with three guests all on the same call, and I was surprised at how well it all came together. I did not expect that. I knew Tom Panarese was up for it after we arranged it when we did episode 13, and I really wanted to work with Nathaniel Hubbard from the Teen Titans Wasteland podcast, which is now called Tighten Up the Defense, covering new Teen Titans and Marvel's The Defenders but I thought we needed one more representative for Titans West era, and lo and behold, Chris Franklin had written an article about them for Back Issue, and surprisingly, all three of them could record on the same night. The only problem was, when it came time to record, we had trouble connecting with Hub for a while. We ended up starting the session 30 to 40 minutes late, and it was still a two and a half hour session. Yeah, it was a long night, but a great conversation. We laughed our asses off at times, I reevaluated my feelings on the story, while I think convincing them that it shouldn't have been a Secret Origins issue. Episode 41, The Flash Rogues. I know this has been a recurring theme looking back over these episodes, but this was the first story Dr. G and I arranged to cover together. Only after we committed to this issue way in advance did I ask him to be on the Rocket Red story that came out a few issues earlier. Episode 42, Phantom Girl and Grim Ghost. I actually don't remember anything unusual about the recordings for this episode. It was Shag and Siskoid. Between us, we've recorded together dozens of times. They're solid. I think I finally hit my groove with this one. Which is good, because episode 43, Hawk and Dove, Cave Carson, and Chris KL99 could have been a very difficult episode to get through. Paul Hicks was always going to be my guest on the Hawk and Dove story, even before he agreed to be on the Ice Maiden story. We arranged that before I had even read the story, and when I did finally read the story the same weekend that I saw Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, I hated it. I mean, I hated both of them. Not, not Paul the movie, and Hawk and Dove story. Meanwhile, Ange was also campaigning for that episode. I wasn't going to bump Paul, and I knew that he and Ange could work together because they already had on an episode of Waiting for Doom, and it felt right to have them double up on Hawk and Dove since I was going to be so harsh that hopefully they would balance out the coverage. The other weird thing about this episode is that I didn't know the Chris KL99 story existed until that same day in March when I read it. Yes, March 2016, nine months after I started this podcast, was the first time I realized the Chris KL99 story existed. I had no idea who the character was, and I thought the story was pretty dumb, so I relied on Professor Allen's boundless professionalism to lift that segment up. Episode 44, Clayface 1, Clayface 2, Clayface 3, and a dash of Clayface 4. Kyle and Chris were terrific guests. That is no secret at all. But what you might not know is that I recorded this episode in my parents' basement. Yes, I went to see my folks last summer, and me and the guys, we had already postponed the recording of that episode twice because of conflicts with one or more of our schedules. So when we finally got to it, oh yeah, I was in my mom's basement. 34 years old at the time, talking about Batman villains in my mom's basement. Pretty much exactly how I always pictured my grown-up life to be. The special, Penguin, Riddler, and Two-Face. Because of the issue's framing device, I had to do more than have my guests just talk about the three origin stories, so I incorporated elements of the unconventional Justice League origin episode to make the special episode, well, even more special. 
Originally, Clinton Robinson was going to be on the Riddler segment, but I decided it would be fitting to have two guests on the Two-Face story, so I teamed Clinton with Nathaniel Wayne, and the switch gave me an excuse to talk to Mike Gillis again, which is always great. And it was great talking Batman with Michael Bailey. We both love the character so much, and I think you're going to hear each of us talking about Batman a lot more in the future. Episode 45, Blackhawks and El Diablo. I almost missed the Blackhawk recording session with Rob because I misremembered the time we had arranged. I had it in my calendar. I just thought we said 5 o'clock when we said 2. Luckily, he texted me and we started half an hour late, but we still did it. It was a bit of a rush job, though, and after talking about Blackhawk, we recorded an episode of Pod Dylan. Episode 46, Justice League Headquarters, Titans Tower, and Legion Clubhouse. For being such a unique and just weird issue. I think it was a great episode. Talking to Mike Peacock for the first time was great. Bringing Greg back for one more origin was great, even though neither of us thought very highly of the story. And then having Martin Gray on one more time, and yes, for the umpteenth time, this was the first story Martin was supposed to be on before he filled in on episode 25. Episode 47, Feral Lad, Karate Kid, and Chemical King. By this point, I'd talked to just about all of the Legion of Super bloggers, and getting Tim and Ange to cover Legion characters made it all the better when I finally, finally got little Russell Burbage of Planet Trom on the show. Russell was yet another guest making his first podcast appearance on the Secret Origins podcast, and he did an awesome job. My conversation with all three of them was great, and I really hope they put together a Legion podcast at some point in the future. Episode 48, Ambush Bug, Stanley and His Monster, Rex the Wonder Dog, and the Trigger Twins. Originally, Bob Fisher was going to be my guest for both the Trigger Twins and the Johnny Thunder story in issue 50. Even though I love talking to Bob about the twins, I'm glad that that was the only one we did because I think the two segments would have sounded very repetitive had we done both. Episode 49, Bouncing Boy, Project Cadmus, and Silent Night. I wanted Siskoid on one of the last episodes, so it was natural to have him on another Legion story. It was his suggestion, actually, to invite the Hot or Not girls, which was awesome. It was actually his suggestion to invite the Hot or Not girls, which was awesome. It did take us a little while to get the call set up with him, Shotgun, and Nat, but it ended up being a really, really fun talk. Maybe too long for a two-page story, but what the hell. Who says less to the Hot or Not girls? Howard Simpson emailed me back in June asking to be on the show, specifically requesting the Newsboy story in issue 49. At the time, as I already mentioned, Michael Bailey was scheduled to cover that story, but Michael and I had already talked about the characters on the Guardian segment, and I couldn't turn down Howard's request given the unique perspective he'd bring to the show, and because the show was always meant to be about giving more people a voice on the podcast. I thought it would be hard bumping Michael from the episode, so I offered him the Johnny Thunder spot on episode 50 as a consolation, not thinking he'd really care, but he did. He jumped at the chance to talk about Johnny Thunder. The only part of the recording with Howard Simpson that I regret is not asking him about the unreleased secret origins he worked on, like the Golden Age Hawk Girl and Sandman and Sandy the Golden Boy. Episode 50, Batman and Robin, The Flash of Two Worlds, Johnny Thunder, Dolphin, Black Canary, and the Space Museum. Before I started recording any of the six segments on the last episode, I had to fly back to Illinois to be in a friend's wedding. There have only been two times in my life when I have been sort of irrationally afraid of flying. The first was after I met the woman who would become my wife. I realized I was in love with her, that I wanted to spend my life with her, and I got really inexplicably nervous getting on a plane because if something happened and the plane went down, I wouldn't be with her. The second time I was afraid to fly was back in September for my friend's wedding because I was so close to the end of Secret Origins, and I got this terrible 
this utterly ridiculous worry that I wouldn't get to finish it. But my travels were safe, and the wedding was delightful. The only thing that crashed was me, because I got sick the week that I had to record all these sessions, and I doubled up on some of them to save time. David's Dolphin segment and Tom's Robin segment were both recorded on the same day. Rob's Black Canary segment and Michael's Johnny Thunder segment were both recorded on my birthday. And for all of them, I had a sore throat and flu-like symptoms. When the guests were talking, I had my mic muted so that I could chug water or Gatorade or blow my nose or hack up a lung. And all of that is to explain my official position that at the end of the Space Museum segment, when Shag got all sappy and sentimental, when he talked about how important the Secret Origins podcast had been, I was stifling a cough, not crying. I was not brought to tears by the conclusion of this podcast. That is my position. And if it is false, well, that's my secret to keep. like smoke with a little come on come on come on and then you walk come on i've been waiting are you waiting for my move well i'm making it Have you said this before on the show? I've never heard that. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> All right. I will attempt to get it in one take. We'll see how this goes. <clears throat> Coming down in five, four, three, two. Roy Thomas's head is up his ass. Thought you were on mute. As I was preparing this coda, this epilogue to the Secret Origins podcast, I knew that I would have to wrap everything up with my final reflections about the series and the show. But I really struggled with what to say, or how to begin, how to approach this last segment in a way that wouldn't feel repetitive, because I said a lot of what I wanted to say at the end of episode 50. Then, a couple of days after episode 50 came out, I checked my email and saw that I had a message from Greg Arujo. He congratulated me on finishing the series and everything, and then he asked me a series of questions, reflective, analytical questions, and it was exactly what I needed to focus my thoughts and crystallize my final reflection. So I decided, rather than just read Greg's questions myself, I mean, you've already heard me talking by myself for two hours on this episode, Rather than another 20 minutes of that, I decided to bring Greg back on the show so we could conduct a sort of exit interview. 
We almost chose to do it in the style of Jay Leno's Tonight Show interview with the drunken cast of Cheers after their last episode, but I opted to stay sober until after we recorded, just in case I pressed the wrong button. Still, if it helps, you can imagine a rowdy Boston bar crowd in the background. Anyway, here is the Secret Origins exit interview with Ryan Daly, conducted by Greg Arujo. Ryan, congratulations on reaching the finish line with the Secret Origins podcast. Monday mornings are going to be a little strange without that notification of a brand new episode. Each week, it was always near the top of my listening queue. The only conflict would be if the a Who's Who episode happened to hit the same week and usually came down to a coin toss in that case. So I wanted to thank you for giving me the opportunity to appear on the show. Even though the stories I covered could be frustrating, Titan's Tower, perplexing, Golden Age Fury, or even slightly annoying, Star Spangled Kid, I mean Skyman, uh, I enjoyed each episode. Yeah, even Titan's Tower. I appreciate the opportunity to make the journey for being the guy yelling at the car radio as I listen to podcasts to being someone other people are yelling at as they listen to the podcasts. But as the end of the Secret Origins run loomed closer, I began to have a few questions about the Secret Origins series beyond just top 10 stories or top 10 covers. I considered posting them on the comments section. However, at the risk of being selfish, I wanted to ask the questions directly to probably the world's authority on Secret Origins. A dubious distinction, I'm sure. What in the hell were you thinking when you started this show? No, seriously, what expectations did you have for the show or even the Secret Origins series when you started the journey with 50 issues, three annuals, and a special sitting in front of you? Well, this will be a little bit of a longer answer because there were technical and logistic expectations as well as broader, somewhat emotional expectations. I wanted to get the podcast listening community involved in the recording and presenting process. Uh, This may sound a little corny, but I wanted to give people a voice. People like Ange and Tim Wallace and Max Romero, who all had blogs but not podcasts. Or other people who shared my fandom that I had met through Twitter, like you, like Martin Gray. All these people who orbited the Fire and Water podcasts and the Rolled Spine podcasts, who were part of the community but weren't involved directly. I thought it would be basically a nice tribute to the podcasts that I love to listen to and the fans who also loved those shows to do something that would bring all of them in. Because that's how I started. Rob and Shag had me on Fire and Water episode 100. When that episode came out, I played that every day for a week. It was so fun being part of that. And I wanted others to feel the way that I felt. So there was a bit of a pay-it-forward mentality. That was why I chose Secret Origins as the subject. I didn't grow up reading the series. I didn't have a deep emotional or nostalgic attachment to it. In fact, as I have copped to before, there were issues of the series that I hadn't even read when I started the show. Characters I knew virtually nothing about, creators I'd never heard of, and in one case, a story I didn't even know existed. Yeah, I, I made this list of all of the characters and origins in the series so that I could figure out which guests I needed to reach out to. And somehow in that process, I just missed Chris KL99. Nine months after the first episode came out, I didn't even know that Chris KL99 story was part of the series. But in spite of not being an expert on the series, 
I knew I could just I could sense that this was the right project to get the community involved because of the diversity in cast. I mean, right? I mean, that's why Rob and Shag pulled me and others in for Fire and Water 100. They had the wisdom to call in experts or just fans of those characters. Secret Origins was an expanded version of that. It had a cast of more than a hundred characters, each with his or her own chapter, his own story. But it was also a finite series, and that too was very important to me going into it, because the scope of the project was intimidating. It could have been debilitating. All of these stories, all different guests, and I was still new at the game. I'd only been podcasting for five months before the first episode came out, and really only two months when I started planning the show. So it really helped to know that the series was only 54 issues, counting the annuals and the special. I never once thought about splitting the episodes up to give each story its own episode, because in my mind that would have actually compounded the problem. That would turn 50 episodes into over 100. So I made a calendar. I started a release schedule for the show before it came out. I knew the first episode would drop on the first Monday of June 2015. If I released a new episode every week without interruption, the last episode would come out on the first Monday of June 2016. A year, basically. I I was giving myself a year to do this show. A year of my life. That helped me keep focus and perspective. And even when I exploded that calendar by going on a 10-week hiatus after episode 25... By then, I knew what this show looked like, and I knew that I could manage it. So all of that, that's what I was thinking about going into the series. Those were my primary expectations. How did those expectations, if at all, change during the course of the run? Uh, Well, the show took off. It became wildly more popular and successful than I imagined. Uh, I I was proud of the first two episodes, but episode three, I think, was a real watershed moment for the podcast. The amount of feedback I received for that episode just blew me away. Now, a lot of the feedback was critical. Listeners who loved Captain Marvel resented that Paul and Nathaniel and I were not high on his origin story. They also, I think, felt like I had betrayed the premise of the podcast, which was getting fans or experts of the character to be on that episode. I had Paul and Nathaniel on the show as last-minute fill-ins. And, I mean, if I had to do that episode again, I would be really tempted to do it differently with different guests. But I can't say that changing that episode would benefit the show because that episode drew such a response from people like Kyle Benning and Jeff Nettleton, people I didn't know at the time, but the reaction showed me that the podcast was reaching an audience bigger than I anticipated and more deeply, and that the listeners were engaging with the show and caring about the material in ways far stronger than I expected. So that emboldened me to reach out to more and more people to appear on the show. Before this started, I thought I would have a dozen guests from the blogs and podcast community, and then I would rely heavily on some of my friends to pick up the slack and cover characters I didn't think anyone cared about. That ended up not being the problem. I hardly ever had to scramble to find a guest. More often than not, I had two or three or even four people asking to be on the episode and prioritizing who got what was the tricky part. Changing gears slightly... Early in the series, it shifted from single stories in standard format to multiple stories in a double-sized issue. In hindsight, do you think the series benefited from this change? I think the comic did benefit from multiple stories, yes. I know the price increased when they did that. I cannot speak to people's buying habits in the late 1980s if that hurt DC in, in terms of finances. 
I don't know. That's not my area of expertise. But what I can say with some confidence is that there is a reason DC and Marvel like team-up books and team books. You grow the audience when you involve characters with their own established fan bases. You also expose characters that some fans might never have heard of. I don't know how many people would have paid full price just to get the origin of Halo, but a whole lot of people will buy a comic with Batman on the cover. And if Halo's origin is included with that, you get a bonus story. And I imagine that a large percentage of the readers of Secret Origins were buying it for Roy Thomas's retellings of the Golden Age heroes. But in so doing, they were also discovering an equal number of modern characters that they might not have thought they cared about. They, you know, they read those stories, and because they already paid for them, now maybe they want to read more Jonah Hex, or more Power Girl, or more Legion. So while lumping more than one origin story into the same issue made my job as the host more difficult, I do think that it made Secret Origins the series far better. At most, your guests had to prepare for six or seven stories. Shag had, what, eight? However, <laughs> However, you had to prepare, endure each and every single one of them. In your mind, what elements are needed for the ideal secret origin story? The most basic element first, the story needs to tell me who this character is and what he or she is all about. How did he get his powers? Why does she wear a costume? You know, these stories, they're character pieces. They're supposed to show us a man or a woman or a group at the moment when they make a life-changing decision to be a hero or a villain or a team. What is that motivation? What drives that decision? Building on from that, a good secret origin, I think, sets itself apart from a good story by showing me more than the character's first appearance retold. This is where I frequently clashed with Roy Thomas's approach to the series. Alan Scott's first adventure as the Green Lantern had already been told. How is this story different? Give me a framing device or some mechanism that sets up why I'm learning this story in this way. Or some previously unknown information, like a genuine secret. Something to make this story essential reading for the character's history. And the last thing, another question I always tried to come back to was, does this story make me want to read more about this character? While it might not be on your top ten list, which Secret Origins surprised you the most? Well, I mean, I've already said that Chris KL99 snuck up on me. Uh, the very existence of that story was a surprise when I got to it. Uh, as for pleasant and unpleasant surprises, I'll give you one of each. The biggest disappointment, I think, was the Zatanna and Zatara issue. I had really high hopes for that one because I love Zatanna. And I had a great, don't get me wrong, I had a great time recording that episode with Professor Allen and Emily Middleton. But the issue, I mean, what DC did to the history of magic and Dr. Mist and Zatanna, I, I hated all of that. So that was the biggest disappointment and, and sort of a surprise. The happiest surprise, by far, was the Legion of Substitute Heroes story. I love that story so much, and it was a concept that I knew nothing about before reading it. And on the bigger level, the Legion of Superheroes was the biggest surprise of this podcast. When I started the show, I just didn't care about them. I thought the cast was too big, too unwieldy, and too removed from the main continuity for me to ever care that much about them. And, well, I mean, it wasn't so much from reading the Legion's origin in issue 25, but through all of the research that I did, the readings of their classic Silver Age adventures, and especially, especially that Great Darkness saga from the Paul Levitz, Keith Giffen era, you know, I, I found myself loving the Legion. It finally clicked for me. That was a huge surprise. Uh, but for specific story, one individual chapter, the Legion of Subs was the happiest surprise. 
as you said, Secret Origins helped you gain an appreciation for the Legion. Now, if the purpose of the series was to introduce readers to the various corners of the DCU, do you feel that the series succeeded in this goal? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are certain pockets that didn't get nearly as much exposure as others, like the war and military corners of the DC Universe and Jack Kirby's 1970s creations, except for Mr. Miracle. But look at what they did cover. 30 different Golden Age heroes, 9 different Legion stories, most of the satellite-era Justice League members, and you know, new Justice League International stories, super animals like Detective Chimp, Rex the Wonder Dog, space adventurers like Captain Comet and Adam Strange, medieval crusaders like Shining Knight, and a brand new hero like El Diablo, you know, Batman villains, Flash villains, and even Green Lantern's Eskimo Pal. You know, I mean, I may complain that we never got the origin of Aquaman or Wonder Woman, but I am astonished by the characters and concepts that we did get. Do you think the series worked better as a companion to major events and storylines like Millennium, Legend, even the Mud Pack storyline, or even as a preview for new series such as Young All-Stars, Power of the Atom, or even Suicide Squad? Did the themed issues work better than just random pairings of characters? As tie-ins to events, I don't think so. I mean, the first tie-in issues were the Phantom Stranger issue and the Suicide Squad issues. Both had the Legends banner across the top. Now, those are both terrific issues, some of the strongest in the entire series. But the Phantom Stranger issue had nothing to do with Legends. You could take the banner off the top and you don't lose anything. The Suicide Squad issue came out after Legends was over. It was more of a lead-up to the Suicide Squad ongoing series. I think of it more as a prelude to the series than the Legends tie-in. Uh, As for Millennium, that was an event that I think most people agree was boring and awful, but it managed to generate some pretty good tie-in issues. I think the Manhunters issue that Roy and Howard Simpson did was pretty good, but my least favorite part about that issue was how Roy forced these connections between heroes named Manhunter and these evil robots. The connections to Millennium, I think, was the weakest part of that issue. And the other tie-in was the Guardians and Floronic Man issue, which was one of the weakest issues of the series. Uh, As for other ones like sort of themed issues, I mean, I, I do think those worked. The Dead Legionnaires, the Super Apes... Deadman and the Spectre, the different headquarters, and the Mud Pack issue. I mean, I think those generally work really, really well together. Now, I'd say that there are probably two different and distinct eras of Sacred Origin, Roy Thomas's and Mark Wade's. Looking back now, at the end, do you have a preference? I don't think so. Uh, There is a bit of an overlap in those eras since Mark Wade started with issue 24 and Roy left after issue 31. I think the Roy Thomas era is more consistent in a way. Uh, if you love those stories, it's amazing. If you don't, it's a slog. Mark Wade's era during the latter half of the series, I think it had higher highs and maybe lower lows. The best stories in Wade's era, I think, were generally better than any other, but the worst were really bad. Uh, I found myself really enjoying discovering some of the quirky, forgotten concepts of the Silver Age during Wade's run, and Roy Thomas's approach really turned me off early on. But I wouldn't take the second half of the series over the first half, or vice versa. So, no, I don't prefer one era over the other. I take the whole thing as one package. Do you feel DC made a mistake by altering some of the origin stories to conform with the then-current DC continuity, such as like Black Canary or placing Wonder Woman in the JLA origin, or even removing Superman and Batman from the JSA origin? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. 
it's a weird answer, but yeah, uh, I do think Wonder Woman should be a founding member of the Justice League of America. And on the other hand, as Al, Kyle, and Shag and I debated on episode 31, I think you can excise Superman and Batman from the origin of the Justice Society. Not that it was necessarily done the right way in that issue, but I do think it is possible. I think the changes to Power Girl's origin were a mistake. There are a dozen alternatives to making her an ancient Atlantean that would have worked better. She could have been Kandorian. She could have been Daxamite. She could have been from the far future. Uh, they could have kept her origin close to the original, but I just I don't think they knew the rules for Survivors of Krypton yet on the editorial level. So they did something completely different, and I, I think pretty dumb. Uh, they you know they started changing Batgirl's origin a little bit, but they still caused more confusion and. They left weird things about her history that they would end up either scrapping or just ignoring Oh, anyway within a year. There's no doubt some of the changes they employed after Crisis were positive, some were necessary, but the lack of long-term planning and knowledge of where the characters would go led to a lot of weird decisions and a lot of inconsistencies. Did the series give you any new appreciation or insights for any of the creators who were involved? Oh, Definitely. Uh, I mean, there were writers and artists whose work I already loved before I started this. You know, writers like Alan Brennert and Neil Gaiman, artists like Mike Parabek and Murphy Anderson. Uh, I wouldn't say my appreciation for those guys grew as a result of the series because they were already pretty much maxed out. But someone like Gerard Jones, whose work I knew from Green Lantern, but I was always sort of hot and cold on that Green Lantern run, he produced some outstanding stories for this series to the point where now, I mean, I'll probably give anything with his name on it a second look stuff I never would have sampled before. I'll give it a shot just for him. Uh, Kevin McGuire. I mean, I already admired his work on Justice League, but looking at his Dead Man origin, which, yes, it came out after Justice League started, but I still think he probably did it first. It might have been his first work for DC. It's incredible. Uh, Howard Simpson. I knew his name, but I wasn't familiar with his work before the series. He impressed me with his ability to recapture that style of Joe Shuster or Jack Kirby or Walt Simonson, and then just give it a flourish, a bit of energy that felt modern. And now Howard and I have spoken multiple times, and we will work together on a future podcast. And one more would be, I think, Ty Templeton. I knew his work, but reading his contributions to the series only enhanced my appreciation of his talent. Same with Dan Mishkin. And I am sure that there are others that I'm not thinking of. But yes, yes, definitely. The series definitely made me a fan of several writers and artists. Now, excluding Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Silver Age, Hawkman, or even Wildcat, are there any other origins you wish the series had included? Uh, how about 20 origins I wish the series had included? And the, the four that you mentioned were probably the four that I would have picked first, but after that... Number one, right now, where I'm at, I, I wish we had gotten the origin of Etrigan the Demon. Number two, Sergeant Rock. Number three, Swamp Thing. And not that I'm not really familiar with the origin of Swamp Thing. I know it pretty well, but just because I would have liked talking about that on the show. And that's why I'm going to be talking about it on an upcoming podcast. Uh, number four, The Phantom Lady. Uh, number five, collectively, Jack Kirby's Fourth World and New Gods. I mean, all we got was Mr. Miracle. I want Big Barda, Orion, Darkseid, Light Ray, High Father, Metron, the Forever People, all of those characters. I mean, can you imagine if that had been one theme issue right there? You know, three or four yeah. of those. Awesome. Uh, and some others. Number six, Green Lantern John Stewart. Number seven, yes. Metamorpho, the Element Man. Number eight, Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Uh, number nine, the pre-crisis version of the Huntress. Number ten, the pre-crisis version of Supergirl. Number eleven, the Haunted Tank. Twelve, Bronze Tiger. Thirteen, Vixen. 
Number 14, The Question. Number 15, Enemy Ace. Number 16, The Metalman. Number 17, Commandy. Number 18, Viking Prince. Number 19, Omac. And number 20, just for kicks, Lobo. I bet number 21 was Geoforce. <laughs> Never. Not a chance in hell. Although they sure teased it enough in the coming soon box. Yeah, I don't I don't regret not getting that one or the Android Red Tornado. Okay, now finally at the end of this journey, what do you feel is the legacy of Secret Origins? Do you think the series was a success, a failure, or a successful failure? I think any series that lasts five years produces 50 issues plus four additional special issues. I don't know how you can call that a failure. Was it canceled before its time? Yes, I suppose. Were there more stories that they could have told? I mean, we know for a fact that there were, yes. Could the series have been better? Could they have approached the marketing and the ties to the greater DC universe differently? I mean, what comic can't that be said about? Secret Origins was not always good, and I don't imagine this book will go down into history with the most beloved or revolutionary comics of the time. But they did exactly what they set out to do. Roy Thomas, Mark Wade, Bob Greenberger, Greg Weissman, and all of the writers, artists, inkers, letterers, colorists, everyone who contributed to Secret Origins. They set out to expose a new generation of readers to some outstanding but occasionally forgotten characters and concepts from DC's rich history. And they did that. Read the letters columns and the issues. Read the comments on this podcast. This comic connected with people, even if they only ever picked up one issue. They got something they couldn't get anywhere else. So yes, it was absolutely a successful comic. And as for its legacy, uh, my friends and I generated something like 120 hours worth of audio that you can listen to that is all discussion of Secret Origins. I mean, maybe a little bit less when you take out all the songs, but that is still a lot of talk about this one little comic. Well, that's all that I have. Thanks for uh, letting me ask these questions. And you know, once again, thanks for letting me play in your sandbox. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, and thank you for you know being the last extra voice on the show, my last sort of guest, to help me reflect on the series, because I kind of needed this before I go. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And as of this episode, Ryan Daly has executed every motherfucking last one of them! <laughs> It goes without saying that this podcast would not exist without the work of every creator and editor who worked on Secret Origins, but this show would have suffered mightily without the hard work, the generosity, the patience, and the professionalism of every guest who appeared on the podcast from episode 1 to episode 50. Chris Franklin appeared on episode 1, Golden Age Superman, episode 6, Golden Age Batman, episode 32, Justice League of America, episode 36, Poison Ivy, Annual 3, Teen Titans, Episode 44, Clayface, and The Coda. His laughter could also be heard on the Johnny Thunder lead-in segment on Episode 13. Tim Wallace appeared on Episode 2, Blue Beetle, Episode 21, Jonah Hex, Episode 33, Green Flame, and Episode 47, Pharaoh Lad. Paul Scavito appeared on Episode 3, Captain Marvel, Episode 13, The Whip, and Episode 40, Detective Chimp. He also recorded the Rudyard Kipling poem, If, in the second annual. Nathaniel Wayne appeared on Episode 3, Captain Marvel, Episode 13, Johnny Thunder, and the special, Two-Face. 
The Irredeemable Shag appeared on Episode 4, Firestorm, Episode 20, Batgirl and Dr. Midnight, Episode 24, Dr. Fate, Episode 31, Justice Society of America, Episode 39, Episode 42, Phantom Girl, Episode 48, Ambush Bug and Rex the Wonder Dog, and Episode 50, Space Museum. He also appeared on the Johnny Thunder lead-in on Episode 13. Siskoid appeared on Episode 5, Crimson Avenger, Episode 7, Sandman, Episode 9, Golden Age Flash, Episode 28, Midnight, Episode 37, Legion of Substitute Heroes, Episode 42, Gay Ghost, and Episode 49, Bouncing Boy. He also appeared on the Johnny Thunder lead-in on Episode 13. Luke Giaconetti appeared on Episode 6, Halo, Episode 11, Hawkman, and Episode 26, Black Lightning. Sean Engel appeared on Episode 7, Guy Gardner. Chad Bokelman appeared on Episode 7, Guy Gardner, Episode 23, Guardians of the Universe, Episode 32, Justice League of America, and Episode 36, Hal Jordan and Tom Kalmaku. Kyle Benning appeared on Episode 8, Shadow Lass, The First Annual, Captain Comet, Episode 31, Justice Society of America, Episode 40, Congorilla, and Episode 44, Clayface. Diablo Frank appeared on Episode 8, Dollman, Episode 21, Black Condor, Episode 23, Floronic Man, Episode 29, The Atom, and Episode 35, Martian Manhunter. He also appeared on the Johnny Thunder lead-in on Episode 13. Gregor Rougeau appeared on Episode 9, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, Episode 12, Golden Age Fury, Episode 46, Titan's Tower, and The Coda. He also appeared on the Johnny Thunder lead-in on Episode 13. Rob Kelly appeared on Episode 10, Phantom Stranger, Episode 16, Amazing Man, Episode 32, Justice League of America, Episode 45, Blackhawk, and Episode 50, Black Canary. He also appeared on the Johnny Thunder lead-in on Episode 13. Ange appeared on Episode 11, Power Girl, Episode 18, Creeper, Episode 43, Hawk and Dove, and Episode 47, Karate Kid. Doug Zavisha appeared on Episode 12, Challengers of the Unknown, Episode 15, Dead Man, The First Annual, Doom Patrol, Episode 35, Max Lord, Episode 45, El Diablo, and Episode 48, Stanley and His Monster. Tom Panarese appeared on Episode 13, Nightwing, The Third Annual, Teen Titans, and Episode 50, Batman and Robin. Illegal Machine appeared on the lead-in segment to Johnny Thunder on Episode 13. Cindy Franklin appeared on Episode 36, Poison Ivy, and the lead-in segment Johnny Thunder on Episode 13. Angela Drew appeared on the lead-in segment Johnny Thunder on Episode 13. Aaron Moss appeared on Episode 14, Suicide Squad, Episode 28, Nightshade, and Episode 37, Dr. Light. Gene Hendricks appeared on Episode 15, The Spectre, Episode 25, Golden Age Adam, and Episode 49, Silent Night. He also appeared on the Johnny Thunder lead-in on Episode 13. Alan Middleton appeared on Episode 16, Warlord, Episode 19, Adam Strange, Episode 27, Dr. Mist, Zatara, and Zatanna, Episode 39, Man Bat, and Episode 43, Chris KL99. Al Girding appeared on Episode 16, Our Man, Episode 26, Miss America, and Episode 31, Justice Society of America. Michael Bradley appeared on Episode 17, Dr. Occult. Michael Bailey appeared on Episode 18, Golden Age Green Lantern, Episode 19, Guardian, The Special, Penguin, and Episode 50, Johnny Thunder. Jeff Nettleton appeared on Episode 19, Uncle Sam, and Episode 22, The Manhunters. Stella appeared on Episode 20, Batgirl and Dr. Midnight. Mike Gillis appeared on Episode 21, Jonah Hex, and The Special, Riddler. Mark Marble appeared on Episode 23, Guardians of the Universe, and Episode 36, Hal Jordan and Tom Kalmaku. Justin Barlow appeared on episode 24, Blue Devil. 
Martin Gray appeared on episode 25, Legion of Superheroes, and episode 46, The Legion Clubhouse. Emily Middleton appeared on episode 27, Dr. Mist, Zatara, and Zatanna. John M. Wilson appeared on episode 29, Red Tornado and Mr. America. Bas Levesque appeared on the second annual Wally West and episode 40, Gorilla City. Nicholas Prom appeared on the second annual Barry Allen Flash. Bradley Null appeared on episode 30, Elongated Man. Max Romero appeared on episode 30, Plastic Man. Keith G. Baker appeared on episode 32, Justice League of America. David A. Gutierrez appeared on episode 33, Mr. Miracle, and episode 50, Dolphin. Paul Hicks appeared on episode 33, Ice Maiden, and episode 43, Hawk and Dove. FKA Jason appeared on episode 34, Captain Adam. Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, appeared on episode 34, Rocket Red, and episode 41, The Rogues. Paul Spataro appeared on episode 34, Gnort. Andrew Leyland appeared on episode 34, Nort. Andy Capellish appeared on episode 35, Booster Gold, and episode 43, Cave Carson. Darren Sutherland appeared on episode 38, Green Arrow. Ruth Sutherland appeared on episode 38, Green Arrow. J. David Weeder appeared on episode 38, Speedy, and episode 50, The Flash of Two Worlds. Nathaniel Hubbard appeared on the third annual, Teen Titans. Clinton Robison appeared on the special, Two-Face. Mike Peacock appeared on episode 46, Justice League Headquarters. Russell Burbage appeared on episode 47, Chemical King. Bob Fisher appeared on episode 48, Trigger Twins. DJ Nat appeared on episode 49, Bouncing Boy. Shotgun appeared on episode 49, Bouncing Boy. And Howard Simpson appeared on episode 49, The Cadmus DNA Project. Thank you all for doing this show for me. Not participating as a favor to me, but doing the show for me. No one benefited from this podcast more than I did. No one enjoyed listening to the podcast more than I did. I always considered myself the show's biggest fan and its primary audience. So everyone who appeared on the show, everyone who talked to me about these comics, either on the episodes or in the feedback, the reviews, the comments, the likes and shares, everyone who supported the show made the show. You all had a part in its formation, and I cannot thank you enough. To all of my listeners, from all of my guests and friends, thank you and goodbye. Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. As always, thanks for listening.
Got a million bad 